Top Now, a podcast about taking action. In Molotov Now, we analyze and discuss news articles and stories of resistance from around the globe and connect them to our struggles here at home in Aberdeen, Washington. In the spirit of building solidarity between the rural and the urban, we hope to inspire direct action in the face of oppression and to light a fire to find each other in the darkness. This is Sprout. And this is sherri and we are the hosts of Molotov Now, and thank you for joining us on this episode of the podcast. Today, we are going to be discussing the police, and how it can often be difficult to address the need for abolition in a small town, where perhaps the militarization of the police is less noticeable and on display as compared to a larger metro area. Yeah, out here can be a real challenge, even with aspiring radicals. Interactions with cops around here could be just as brutal as the cops of the city, yet you don't hear about those stories. The only reporting we see on police forces here is the quotes from them found in the local paper, The Daily World. They never report on the abuses of our police force. It's as though it's not worth covering, or they don't really even think of it as a story. The newspapers merely ask the police what happened and then report that verbatim. It's not a problem that's unique to The Daily World, but it can really make it difficult to advance an abolitionist position. It certainly does. ACAB is not often where you start the conversation out here. We have to meet people where they are at which is often suffering under the belief that the police are the most benevolent members of society. It's not until they are pushed back against that they exert the sort of violent force that we see in larger cities. This means that we often have to first convince people that the police are actually a harmful institution at their core before advancing the position that they should be abolished. So that's the goal today, to show people how that despite the fact that some police officers in their small town may not be monsters in their personal life, Their position in society creates the vast range of harm that we deal with in society. Yeah, we will be reading from an article from the Harbor Rat Report titled The Problem with Good Cops and talking to a member of our local community about their experiences with our police here on the harbor. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Doug. I grew up on the harbor and growing up on the harbor, I've had the unfortunate experience of dealing with our police system firsthand and our prison systems. Well, it's nice to have you. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today, and we hope to get into some of those experiences as we talk about it today. Okay, thanks for having me, and I guess we'll talk about this. Well, before we do, we have our monthly Radical News Roundup. But first, a word from our sponsor. The Black Flower Collective would like to announce the third annual May Day on the Harbor Celebration. Come and join us May 1st for an all-day event featuring local historical presentations with live music, food, and drinks. Author and labor historian Aaron Goings will be discussing his newest book, The Port of Missing Men, and will talk about his research on the real history of Billy Ghoul, the infamous serial killer on the harbor. Or was he? Q&A panel and book signings to follow. We have activities for the whole family, including face paintings, cornhole, arts and crafts, local history, and live music by the window-smashing job creators, and much more. 
solidarity forever, for the union makes us strong. Enter for a chance to win a brand new Nintendo Switch. Participate in our silent auctions. Items include your very own cornhole set, a book from our radical library, or other cool items. Now we stand outcast and starving, mid the wonders we have made, but the union makes us strong. All proceeds benefit the Black Flower Collective and their land projects, which aim to provide secure and permanent housing for those facing homelessness on the harbor. For more information, visit linktree backslash LLC. That's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E backslash B-L-A-C-K-F-L-O-W-E-R-L-L-C. Molotov Now. It's time for a recap of the news this month. In Pacific Northwest news, in Aberdeen, in the middle of a cold March morning, the city of Aberdeen destroyed multiple people's homes. After delivering a 72-hour notice, the city moved in around 10 a.m. on Friday, March 10th, with bulldozers and dump trucks in order to commit an illegal sweep of the river site encampment of unhoused individuals. Many people had no time to prepare as the week was filled with rain and wind. Despite being given a sheet of paper that described a process for the city to hold and store their property for 60 days, everything that wasn't grabbed by the campers and set out on tarps across the train tracks from the camp was thrown in the back of the dump truck with all the other debris. The city was using building code violations and health and safety as a reason to commit this illegal act. Although, now the campers have been further traumatized, stolen from, and will now be forced into tiny tents instead of the more spacious and easier-to-heat wooden structures that had been built up. There is no way this callous action was aimed at securing better living conditions for those affected. The police were there to make sure that anyone who provided any resistance was threatened with arrest. SOAP, or Save Our Aberdeen Please, our local fascist political organization, was present to videotape and laugh at people's trauma. Their political base elected the very mayor and city council members who made the day possible. They are well-organized and motivated, and our counter-operations should not underestimate them. With smiles on their faces, like this was just another day at work, the city workers used two large claw machines to smash and lift the debris into many dump trucks. The remainder was swept and shoveled up. Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network was on site before the city. They set up a canopy with food and coffee, distributed literature on the laws and rights of people on the streets, and took some survey responses from campers affected by the city's actions. They also held signs in protest of the city's actions. Earlier the same day, some intrepid autonomous activists dropped two banners on the Chehalis River Bridge overpass above camp. The first banner read, Being homeless isn't a crime. Stop the sweeps. And the second read, Stop the sweeps. You sweep, we strike. Both read hashtag Stop Cop City in solidarity with the forest defenders in Atlanta. This was all during the week of action against the city of Aberdeen announced by Sabo Media, the Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network, and Food Not Bombs. The call for action and the joint statement can be found online. 
at sabomedia.noblogs.org backslash solidarity. A homeless rights conference was held on the 5th in order to get people up to speed on what rights they had after a week spent distributing Know Your Rights materials and response surveys to the unhoused community in preparation for the sweep. We found ourselves facing the wrecking crew on Friday, March 10th at 10 a.m. People were prepared, but still traumatized and upset. We spent the day helping people carry their stuff out of their structures and lay it out on tarps across the road. There was nowhere for people to place their things out of the rain while the process of destruction was going on. This is why showing solidarity and support through actions taken, like the Homeless Rights Conference and the protest at the sweep, not to mention autonomous actions like the banner drops, are so important. When we take actions to inform people of their rights, they are more likely to want to organize to assert those rights. When signs of support show up, our comrades know they are not alone. It is our duty as radical organizers to be in the streets, showing our solidarity at these times. We are grateful to all those who responded regionally to our calls for action and made their way to Aberdeen to show up for the unhoused, having their lives disrupted. In Bremerton, a new free bike repair program has opened up for the community. The Bremerton Bike Kitchen is an anarchist mutual aid-based guerrilla bike repair program that provides free cycling repairs for homeless cyclists in the downtown Bremerton area. Ran by and for people who rely on bicycles as means of transportation, we are encouraging a car-free autonomy on the street level. You could find the kitchen on Saturdays at 4.30 behind the old KRM building at the Kitsap Food Not Bombs tent or reach out to them at 564-201-0623. Two Western Washington artists have pleaded guilty after being charged for faking Native American heritage to sell art, despite neither having tribal enrollment or heritage. In two separate cases, Louis Anthony Rath, 53, of Maple Falls, and Jerry Chris Van Dyke, also known as Jerry Witten, 68, of Seattle, were charged, both in late 2021, with violations of the Indian Arts and Crafts Act, a statute aimed at ridding the indigenous arts and crafts market of counterfeits. Both men are set to be sentenced on May 17th. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service investigations, which began in February 2019, found that Van Dyke, under the name Witten, had represented himself as a Nez Perce artist when selling his artworks, despite later admitting to the USFWS agents that he was not a tribal member. Carved pendants said to be based on the Aluit masks were among some of his faked works. On Wednesday, Van Dyke pleaded guilty to misrepresentation of Indian-produced goods and products, which can include a sentence of up to one year in prison. In 2021, Van Dyke told investigators that the idea to represent his work as Native American was Matthew Steinbrooks, the owner of Raven's Nest Treasure. Van Dyke sold work under the name Witten at the Pike Place Market Shop, the Associated Press reported at the time. When speaking with the AP, Steinbrook denied the claim. According to the U.S. Attorney's Office, an investigation into Wrath, which started in May 2019, found Rath to be falsely representing himself as a member of the San Carlos Apache tribe when undercover agents purchased Rath's artworks, including carved totem poles, masks, and a necklace from Raven's Nest and Ye Old Curiosity Shop. Agents executing a search warrant on Rath's Whatcom County home and studio then found feathers from protected birds such as golden eagles and other migratory birds like hawks, jays, and owls in Rath's possession. The feathers have since been forfeited to the government. Our next story follows a series of publications put out by the Southwest Washington Anti-Racism Movement, or SWARM, 
Facebook, about a white supremacist organization known as the Asatro Folk Assembly and a new business they have opened up in downtown Centralia, Washington. The following is a news report made by King5 with plagiarized research from Swarm. Before we move on with more details about this story, I would like to give a brief analysis of the coverage of this story. The news report falls short in several key places when it comes to how they report on this group. The coverage is borderline irresponsible and it needs to be mentioned. The report in its entirety uses a typical both-sides approach to talking about white supremacists platforming their beliefs in public as an equal extreme to those that would not have them speak in the first place. This serves to normalize the behavior of racists and white supremacist organizations such as the Asasu Folk Assembly. The report also irresponsibly platforms white supremacist talking points without any critique or analysis for the viewer, leading to many people hearing these talking points without any pushback. Also, their claim that the business is not associated with the Asasu Folk Assembly, which is irrelevant since they have the exact same beliefs and, and agenda. While ignoring this fact, they also managed to fail to draw nuanced distinctions between many in the neo-pagan movement who are resolutely anti-racist and actively push back on this behavior in their own community from neo-Nazis that have co-opted it. All of these irresponsible failures mean that this report itself needed critiquing before continuing. Anyways, back to the story at hand. On the 9th of March, following a statement made by Centralia Mayor Johnston condemning the white supremacist storefront, Swarm put out a post stating the following. We encourage all local leaders to follow Mayor Johnson's example and condemn white supremacy. We look forward to her taking concrete steps to address the legacy of white supremacy in Centralia and Lewis County more broadly. The Post shared a statement put out by the mayor that read as follows. Note, this is not Hub City Music. I stopped by the music store at 223S Tower yesterday and met the owner, Tanner. His storefront has a banner for Asatru. I asked him what he offers in his store, music and music lessons, and whether he knew that Asatru is often associated with Asatru Folk Assembly, AFA, an identified racial hate group. We had a fairly in-depth conversation. I learned that Tanner supports Asatru and understands the associations. When I asked if he believes whites are superior to other races, he said that races are different. When I asked again, he did not refute the idea that whites are superior. I shared with him the story of our founder, George Washington, and how he founded Centralia based on the principles of inclusion and welcome. I said this is the legacy we honor and that I would publicly oppose him and Asatru. So let me be crystal clear here. As mayor of Centralia, I welcome people from all races and ethnicities. I strive to create an inclusive city, and I oppose people and businesses that promote racist ideals. I invite you to do the same. Also in response to this, in a post on the 22nd of March, Swarm called to attention the using of Centralia founder George Washington to absolve Centralia of a long legacy of white supremacy in Lewis County. Swarm stated as follows. Addressing the recent remarks of local politicians, we would like to say that you cannot simply point to the fact that George Washington founded Centralia to absolve yourselves of the long legacy of white supremacy in Lewis County. Another legacy that is less often recognized is that Lewis County was the Washington headquarters for the Silver Shirts, a pro-Hitler group active during the 1930s. The publisher of the Centralia Tribune at the time was also a member. However, this was not the only response to the milquetoast liberal condemnation of white supremacy. As this story has grown, it has forced many Republicans across Lewis County to send in their condemnations to provide tacit cover for their party's rhetoric after this business started saying the quiet parts out loud. Some, following the mayor's example of clinging to George Washington for absolution, Swarm posted on March 22nd that... Today, the Olympian reported that several local Washington Republican legislators spoke out in opposition to the AFA and their shop in Centralia. 
Putting aside these politicians' questionable commitment to opposing white supremacy, we couldn't help but take notice of at least one notable absence from the list. Washington House Representative Jim Walsh, given Jim Walsh's previous history of rallying with fascists like Joey Gibson, it comes as little surprise. In a recent comment on the Chronicle's Facebook page, it was said that Jim Walsh had been notified to launch an investigation into Swarm's ties to Antifa and BLM. Let us save you the time. Swarm is an anti-fascist organization and standing in full solidarity with BLM movements against systemic racism and white supremacy. Nazis get fucked. In another post by Swarm on March 15th, in response to Centralia Councilperson Elizabeth Cameron's negative response to the mayor's statement, the post reads as follows. Recently, Swarm called for all local leaders to follow Centralian Mayor Kelly Smith Johnston's example and to denounce white supremacist organizing in Lewis County. During last night's Centralia City Council meeting, Councilperson Elizabeth Cameron used her time to say that she wasn't aware of a white supremacy problem in Centralia, that she thought the media was blowing it out of proportion, and that she was embarrassed. Not about the white nationalists setting up shop in downtown, but because the mayor denounced it. She also urged tolerance for different beliefs, including those espoused by white nationalists. Elizabeth Cameron can be reached out at ecameron at cityofcentralia.com. Their number is 360-669-3883. Or you can reach them at the Centralia City Council meetings on the 2nd and 4th, Tuesday of every month. Leah Derud also spoke out against the mayor in a council meeting, demanding the mayor apologize to Tanner Thayer and the AFA, Swarm responded with a post stating, While Leah Derud shirked from her self-appointed role as a far-right culture warrior with a watered-down statement at Tuesday's Centralia City Council meeting, we don't want to neglect recognizing her role in trying to excuse white nationalist organizing in Centralia by framing it as an issue of religious liberty. The AFA uses religion as a means to hide its white nationalist agenda, but according to the councilwoman Derud, they're just honoring their heritage. In a statement posted to Facebook Tuesday evening, Drude said she had expected the mayor to apologize to Tanner Thayer and the AFA and echoed Elizabeth Cameron's remarks that tolerance should be extended to white nationalists. Leah Derude can be reached out at LDarude, that is L-D-A-A-R-U-D, at cityofcentralia.com. Their phone number is 360-540-8580. Or you can find them on the second and fourth Tuesday of every month at the Centralia City Council meetings. Unfortunately, this white supremacist storefront is not just an anomaly white supremacist organization in Centralia, but one of many with deep ties to the history of Washington and the legacy of its settlement, such as Centralia, with white supremacist groups such as the Asatru Land Union and Asatru Northwest. This brings us to Elwin Herman. Elwin Herman had responded to Leah DeRude's statement, claiming that, quote, This was written by Leah DeRude. She is now my personal hero. Tonight was Centralia's regularly scheduled city council meeting where members of the council shared their outrage for the mayor's statements, discrimination and violation of a resident and business owner's freedom to practice his own religion and do business in our town. So who is Elwin Herman? Well, according to another post, Swarm states that Elwin Herman's personal hero is now Centralia city council person Leah DeRud due to her defense of Tanner Thayer and the AFA after last Tuesday's city council meeting. To remind folks once again, Elwin Herman of the Sacred Spiral Sanctuary attended the Northwest AFA Regional Gathering in 2020. She has supported the organizing efforts of the Asatru Land Union. She associates with a number of white nationalists. Her husband, Tom, was a KKK leader, and her son, Joshua, is a neo-Nazi. Tom Herman, who Swarm identified in another post, that stated, 
Due to the recent intention around AFA and white supremacist organizing in Lewis County, we'd like it to again remind folks of other key organizers and supporters whom we have identified in the past. Most brazenly, perhaps, is Tom Herman of the Sacred Spiral Sanctuary in Ethel, Washington. Not too long ago, it came to our attention that Tom was fired from his job as a police officer in New Hampshire for openly organizing KKK rallies. These days, when Tom isn't busy with his job at Washington DNR, Tom and his wife Elwyn run a pseudo-spiritual grift on gullible followers from their quote-unquote sanctuary a few years ago. Elwyn was a featured speaker at the AFA's regional gathering in Leavenworth, immediately preceding their leaders, notorious white nationalists Stephen McNallan and Matt Flavel. The New Hampshire Magazine wrote that, In August of 1989, Tom Herman was 28 worked for the Rockingham County Sheriff's Department, and was a police officer in Newfields when he applied for a permit for a Klan rally at Swayze Parkway. The permit was denied, but Herman and his cohorts in Klan regalia walked through downtown Exeter with signs and leaflets. When interviewed by Foster's Daily Democrat, Herman remarked, I see a lot of blacks out on the streets, and they don't act like white people, he said. They aren't civilized at all. I want to be separate from that. I want to be with people who are civil. The Boston Globe picked up the story, and by 1991, Herman's job at the Sheriff's Department was terminated, a move he called discriminatory. Local Klan activity ceased when he moved south and essentially disappeared, but this striking photo, taken by local photographer David Mendelssohn, remained, presenting a question. Where is he now? He wasn't really hiding, but it required the services of Dover private investigator Frank Santon to track him down. Now 53 years old, he's a firefighter who lives in Washington State. He's been fighting wildfires for over a dozen years, and that's what he was doing on August 8, 2014, when we reached him by phone at base camp. He seemed happy to talk. The interview played similarly to other white supremacists after being exposed, with little to no remorse for their actions. And when asked, care to offer any words of wisdom to the guy in the photo, referring to a photo of Tom Herman dressed in Klan robes, he said that, quote, Well, I tell a lot of young people that they should think about what they post to YouTube or Facebook. Things you do there will be seen for a long time by prospective employers. I guess I should have done things more privately, but I've lived long enough that I am part of history now. And when asked, what do you plan to do with that photo? He said, quote, I'm going to put it in an archival quality mat and frame it, hang it on the wall somewhere. It's hard to determine the full extent of the white supremacist organizing here in Washington state and their connections to other organizations nationally. Eastern Washington, following the long history of white supremacist organizing in Washington state, has proven a prime ground for recruiting for various far-right and white supremacist organizations such as Patriot Front, Proud Boys, White Europa, and many others. Just recently in Centralia, Swarm posted on the 9th of March that, For those who weren't aware, Patriot Front recently put up stickers in downtown Chehalis. Please be vigilant and immediately report and remove white supremacist propaganda. As a note from Sabo Media, we would also like to remind listeners that when taking down fascist posters or stickers, to please use your car keys or a razor blade or some other tool, as fascists have been known to put razor blades behind their propaganda in order to cut the fingers of those who take them down. If you see something, please do something, but be safe. This is all escalating activity following 2022, where the spread of white supremacist propaganda hit record levels, according to a report on the 8th of March by the Anti-Defamation League. The ADL Center on Extremism identified 6,751 cases where white supremacist groups distributed racist, anti-Semitic, and anti-LGBTQ materials last year, including graffiti, banners, stickers, and flyers.
That's a 38% jump from the year before, and it's the highest number the ADL has ever recorded, the, re- the report stated. Distribution of anti-Semitic propaganda more than doubled in 2022, the ADL said. There is no question that white supremacists and anti-Semites are trying to terrorize and harass Americans and have significantly stepped up their use of propaganda as a tactic to make their presence known in communities nationwide, ADL CEO Jonathan Greenblatt said in a statement. The ADL identified at least 50 groups that distributed white supremacist propaganda last year, but it noted that 93% of the activity was just from three groups, Patriot Front, Goyam Defense League, and White Lives Matter. The Patriot Front, which calls for the creation of a white ethnostate, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, was responsible for 80% of propaganda's distribution in 2022. It was most active in Massachusetts, Texas, Michigan, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Utah. The surge in anti-Semitic propaganda was driven by the Goyam Defense League. The group's overarching goal is to expel Jews from America, the report stated. The sheer volume of white supremacist propaganda distributions we are documenting around the country is alarming and dangerous, Oren Segal, vice president of ADL Center on Extremism, said. White supremacist propaganda has been on the rise for several years. White supremacist propaganda nearly doubled from 2019 to 2020 and jumped more than 120% from 2018 to 2019. We must do everything we can to not only disrupt and sabotage the propaganda efforts of white supremacists, but we also must do what we can to do our own parts and do everything we can to spread our own message. To learn more about how one might paint the world in flyers, we highly suggest looking at the publications of Crime Think as an example of how one might go about reporting on the issues that face their community today. In Seattle, King County cops execute a trans woman as part of an eviction in Ballard. A 29-year-old woman is dead, and King County Sheriff Detective David Easterly remains hospitalized with a gunshot wound after deputies attempted to evict the woman from her apartment in Ballard Monday morning. An ambulance took Easterly to Harborview Medical Center, where hospital spokesperson Susan Gregg said the detective was in critical but stable condition and headed into surgery. Law enforcement officers found the woman dead in her apartment about two hours after the shooting. According to the King County Superior Court filings, the woman's eviction process began in September of 2022 over her failure to pay about $6,300 in rent. Housing Justice Project senior managing attorney Edmund Witter said his office handled her case but could not say more due to attorney-client privilege. However, the connection between evictions and death was not new to him. A person can match the names of people who died unsheltered to the names of people who were booted from their homes the year before pretty faithfully, Witter said. An eviction can feel like a death sentence, he added. On Monday, three deputies went to an apartment complex on the 800 block of Northwest 54th Street in Ballard to evict the woman, according to Megan Black, a spokesperson for King County Independent Force Investigation Team, or IFIT. At about 9.30 a.m., deputies called for backup after gunfire was exchanged. One bullet slipped beneath a deputy's bulletproof vest and exited through his body. Black initially said that the two uninjured deputies fired their guns, but an IFIT statement released Tuesday said investigators found evidence indicating all three deputies probably returned fire. After the exchange, the woman went back into her apartment and barricaded herself inside, Black said. About two hours later, the Seattle Police Department, who responded to the call about an injured deputy, entered the apartment and found the woman dead. An update. According to the medical examiner's office, she died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Black said investigators were still looking into who shot first, whether the police recovered a gun from inside the apartment, and how many shots were fired. 
The Tuesday statement from IFIT named the other two detectives as Benjamin Wheeler and Benjamin Miller. A member of a mutual aid organization on scene said over the weekend that he delivered groceries to her. The source said he'd been working with her and knew she was facing eviction and that she'd put up two-by-fours and metal barricades over her door to prevent anyone from forcing her out of her apartment. Gilman Park Partners, LLC, owns Ballard Apartment Complex, where the woman lived. In September, the company told the woman she had 14 days to either pay the rent she owed or vacate the apartment. The woman's lease dated back to at least 2019, though records show she may have become a tenant sometime in 2018. She paid rent on time until 2020. In court, the Housing Justice Project lawyers cited pandemic-related financial hardships as their argument against the eviction. Gilman's attorneys said the woman hadn't paid during the two months after the mayor lifted Seattle's civil emergency. In December, the court found in favor of the landlords. Seattle's ban on winter evictions prevented Gilman from kicking her out until after March 1st. On Monday, the King County Sheriff's deputy followed the court order to remove her from the apartment. In Boise, Idaho, Republican Governor Brad Little signed a bill allowing execution by firing squad, making Idaho the latest state to turn to older methods of capital punishment amid a national-wide shortage of lethal injection drugs. The legislator passed the measure on March 20th with a veto-proof majority. Under it, firing squads will only be used if the state cannot obtain the drugs needed for lethal injections. Pharmaceutical companies increasingly have barred executioners from using their drugs, saying they were meant to save lives. One Idaho death row inmate has already had his execution postponed repeatedly because of drug scarcity. The shortage has prompted other states in recent years to revive older methods of execution. Only Mississippi, Utah, Oklahoma, and South Carolina have laws allowing firing squads if other execution methods are unavailable. According to the Death Penalty Information Center, South Carolina's law is on hold pending the outcome of a legal challenge. Some states began refurbishing electric chairs as standbys when lethal drugs are unavailable. Others have considered, and at times use, largely untested execution methods. In 2018, Nevada executed Carrie Dean Moore with a never-before-tried drug combination that included a powerful synthetic opioid fentanyl. Alabama has built a system for executing people using nitrogen gas to induce hypoxia, but has not yet been used. The last person to be executed by firing squad was convicted killer Ronnie Lee Gardner, according to the group, who was shot to death by a firing squad in a Utah prison in 2010. During a historic round of 13 executions in the final months of Donald Trump's presidency, the federal government opted for the sedative pentobarbital as a replacement for lethal drugs used in the 2000s. It issued a protocol allowing firing squads for federal executions if necessary, but that method was not used. Idaho Senator Doug Ricks, a Republican who co-sponsored the state's firing squad bill, told his fellow senators on the 20th of March that the state's difficulty in finding lethal injection drugs could continue indefinitely, that he believes death by firing squad is humane, and that the bill would help ensure the rule of law is carried out. But Senator Dan Foreman, also a Republican, called firing squad executions beneath the dignity of the state of Idaho. They would traumatize the executioners, the witnesses, and the people who clean up afterward, he said. Agency director Jeff Tewalt said that he would be reluctant to ask his staffers to participate in a firing squad. The law takes effect on July 1st. In other news... Canada's federal police force has opened an investigation into a controversial unit tasked with overseeing environmental protests. Following hundreds of complaints that officers used excessive force disregarded court orders, and violated protesters' rights. The Civilian Review and Complaints Commission, a watchdog arm of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, 
said on Thursday it would examine the activities of the Community Industry Response Group, or CIRG, based in British Columbia. During the Ferry Creek blockade against old-growth forest logging on Vancouver Island, officers with the special unit were accused of ripping off protesters' masks to pepper spray them and dragging them by their hair. British Columbia Supreme Court judge subsequently ruled that the exclusion zone created by the RCMP set up to prevent media from entering certain areas of the injunction area, were unlawful. The CIRG was also involved in protests over the coastal gas link pipeline, deploying riot control officers, dogs, and helicopters to dismantle blockades, and, as The Guardian has previously reported, was prepared to shoot on indigenous protesters. The unit is currently the target of a lawsuit alleging it used, quote, unlawful tactics to dismantle the Ferry Creek protest, and is also linked to a broader press freedom lawsuit after RCMP officers detained two journalists reporting on police efforts to tear down blockades against the coastal gas link pipeline on traditional Wet'suwet'en territory. The RCMP oversight body says it will assess whether the unit's operations are consistent with Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms, as well as the recently passed legislation on the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. The force has said it will also ensure the unit's actions align with recommendations from a national inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. The chair of the oversight group, Michelle LeHay, is not a part of the RCMP. The CIRG unit, staffed with volunteer RCMP officers, was originally formed in 2017 to help resource extraction protests proceed by breaking up public protests and blockades. The unit has cost nearly $50 million Canadian million over the past five years, according to CBC News. The CRCC has the ability to examine the conduct of individual officers to determine if policies or training need to change, the RCMP said. After police in Ohio raided Afferman's house last August, the rapper, known in the early aught for hits including Because I Got High and Colt 45, they decided to make something out of the bad situation. Law enforcement had searched his home on suspicion of drug trafficking and kidnapping, but found no evidence and filed no charges against him. He says they kicked down his door, broke his video surveillance system, stole money from him, and frightened his family. Afroman, whose real name is Joseph Foreman, told NPR in a phone interview that what he did next was his smartest, most peaceful solution. I asked myself, as a powerless black man in America, what can I do to the cops that kicked my door in, tried to kill me in front of my kids, stole my money, and disconnected my cameras, he says. And the only thing I could come up with was make a funny rap song about them and make some money. Use the money to pay for the damages they did and move on. He released an album with songs about the raid and made music videos out of the surveillance footage. He created merchandise and social media posts calling out the officers who had been involved. Now, some of them are suing him, his label, and a Texas-based music distribution company for invasion of privacy. Four deputies, two sergeants, and one detective from the Adam County Sheriff's Office are accusing the rapper of profiting from the unauthorized use of their likeness at their personal and professional expense. In a complaint filed in an Ohio pleas court last week, they say it's been more difficult and dangerous to carry out their duties because of comments made and attitudes expressed towards them by members of the public who have seen the videos. They say they have received death threats and also suffered humiliation, ridicule, mental distress, embarrassment, and loss of reputation. No charges came from the search, but that wasn't the end of the story. Afroman says he's had to repair his door, an external gate, and his security system wiring, which cost him nearly $20,000. 
He also accuses police of stealing from him. The officers had confiscated more than $5,000 in cash during the raid, which Afferman says were earnings from performances. It was eventually returned to him, but with $400 missing. Just last month, an investigation concluded that deputies had misconducted the original amount, a claim that Afferman continues to dispute. They became thieves and stole my money, he wrote on Instagram. After they stole my money, they became criminals. After they became criminals, they lost their right of privacy. The Biden administration is considering reinstating the policy of detaining migrant families who cross the border illegally, a practice President Joe Biden had ended when he came into office, two administration officials said. It is one of several options administration officials are mulling as they prepare for the end of Title 42, the public health order that allows border agents to immediately turn away certain migrants who cross the southern border illegally. The White House and Department of Homeland Security officials have had multiple meetings in recent days to discuss the possibility of reviving the practice ahead of the anticipated expiration of Title 42 in May and as migrant border crossings remain high. One official said the administration is looking at multiple options for how to handle migrant families at the southern border, not all of them involving family detention. Another source familiar with the deliberations added that among the options discussed are some that wouldn't involve detaining families in ICE facilities. This source said that family detentions would be limited to a small number of days, an attempt to set the policy apart from the Trump administration's handling of family detentions. Biden has increasingly turned to tougher border enforcement measures in recent months, drawing criticism from immigrant advocates and progressive Democrats who view the changes as a return to some of the policies under President Donald Trump. The administration released a new rule last month that has largely barred migrants who traveled through other countries on their way to the U.S.-Mexico border from applying for asylum in the United States, making a departure from decades-long protocol. In an interview with Amy Goodman on Democracy Now!, she talks about the workers returning to work after the Warrior Met coal strike that lasted over two years on the picket line with labor reporter Kim Kelly, who has been reporting on the strike since the beginning and the author of Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. The president of the United Mine Workers of America sent a letter to Warrior Met granting an unconditional offer to return to work on March 2nd as the two parties continue to negotiate a new contract. Here's the recording of their interview. We're joined in Birmingham by Kim Kelly, independent labor journalist who's covered the Warrior Met strike since it began. Her new piece for The Nation magazine is headlined, Why the Warrior Met Strike is Ending. She's also author of the book Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Kim. It's great to have you with us. Explain what's happening tomorrow and the significance of this longest strike in Alabama history. Thank you so much for having me and for spotlighting these workers' struggle. It's been difficult to get media attention on this strike. But, yes, after 23 months, the coal miners of Brookwood, Alabama, are heading back to work. Now, March 2nd is the return-to-work date that President Cecil Roberts gave. It's going to be a long process, though. Uh, the company—I I acquired a— um, a document from the company that expressed some of the conditions that it had for the workers to return. It wants them to get physicals and drug tests and undergo safety training. So it's not all going to happen at once. Not everyone is going to roll down into the mines tomorrow, but the process has begun. And this is in uh, kind of a messy end to what's been a very long and grueling and difficult labor conflict down here in uh, outside Birmingham, Alabama. These miners went on strike back in April 1st, 2021. They voted down a tentative agreement that was reached a few days later. I believe that was April 8th or 9th, and they've been out on strike ever since. It has been a slog. 
but these miners have held the line. You know, they've been supported by their families, by the local community. It's been incredibly difficult because, as you mentioned, Alabama's a right-to-work state. This is not a union-friendly area. The local, the local judiciary has made it incredibly difficult for them to hold their pickets and to continue the strike. Local law enforcement has made it very clear they are not on the workers' side. The company has been very recalcitrant in the way that it's dealt with the strike. But after 23 months, the decision was made by UMWA leadership that, you know, they had to try a new tactic. The company has not been budging. The company has actually been profiting, even with the skeleton crew of scabs it has been operating with, due to high coal prices. So it's really at kind of a do-or-die point. As President Roberts mentioned in the letter he sent to uh, Warrior Med CEO, the only people being harmed right now are the miners and their families. And so the union has changed tack, and the strike itself is no longer happening. But the fight continues. They're going to keep fighting out. This, this struggle in uh, negotiations at the bargaining table. And hopefully we're going to finally see some movement because these miners really need a break right now. And could you talk about the company's use of replacement workers uh, and the impact that that had and uh, in their ability to persevere against the, uh, the union in this case? Absolutely. One of the reasons that Warrior Met Coal has been able to remain profitable and productive is the fact that it launched an extensive effort to recruit replacement workers, scabs, from other states. We've seen billboards as far as West Virginia and Kentucky, Tennessee, asking workers, come down here, come work for us, we'll give you benefits, we'll give you bonuses. The people working in the mines right now who are not union, who are replacement workers, they're making $2,000 a month bonuses that the workers whose jobs those rightfully are were never making. Uh, and they, it's, it's a problem because these workers... They don't have the experience and the knowledge that the union miners have. You know, they, some of these folks are new to mining. They've worked uh, nine months, a year. Some of the folks that are on strike, they've been working in those mines for 20, 30 years. That makes a difference. And the company's been able to exploit the fact that workers need to pay the bills. Coal mining is a complicated industry. There aren't as many decent-paying jobs as there used to be. And so people have come down from other states and essentially taken these Alabama workers' jobs, crossed the picket line, and helped to break this strike. Um, as you write about, Warrior Met reported large profits due to um, the mine's running the skyrocketing price of coal. Um, uh, can you talk about not only this and what that means, but also what it means to be in Alabama, um, a famously uh, anti-labor state, um, and what this signifies for the country right now? So much of this is sheer bad luck. The miners walked out on April 1st. In June 2021, coal prices skyrocketed. I believe they quadrupled, and that those prices have held. So throughout the entire strike, or even though these workers have been out, they have been running a skeleton crew, they, the mines have not been at full capacity, the owners have been able to profit because of those coal prices. And the market is not something that workers can control. So it's been a huge issue and a huge reason why the strike's economic impact hasn't been felt the way that the union and the workers wanted it to be. And also the fact that we are in Alabama, which I must say is a state with an incredibly rich labor history and a strong labor movement, but a very, very anti-union state government. It's a right-to-work state, which weakens the movement. Uh, as, as I mentioned, law enforcement has been very clear about whose side they're on in this conflict. 
and have turned a blind eye to violence on the picket line. And Alabama itself, there's something that happens a lot when we talk about the Deep South, places like Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana, where I think there's an impulse for folks to write them off. It's like, okay, well, we're not going to be able to pull anything off here anyway. There's no point. But there is, and there are so many people who have been fighting here for centuries, whether we're talking about the mine mill workers decades ago, or the sharecroppers that Robin D.G. Kelly highlighted in his book, Hammer and Ho, or the Amazon workers down the street in Bessemer two years ago that launched the first effort to unionize an Amazon warehouse in this country. There is a labor movement here. There are workers here, but they need more support. They need better laws. They need better politicians and officials to actually support them, because this shows what happens when workers are abandoned by the people that are supposed to advocate for them and supposed to protect them. They're hung out to dry and left at the mercy of a Wall Street venture capital-backed company that sees nothing but dollar signs when it looks at them. And we've only got about a minute left, but I wanted to ask you precisely about the lack of support, either uh, focusing on this strike by the national media or national politicians, uh, uh, especially given the fact that the Biden administration claims to be so pro-labor. There were no major political figures uh, coming to uh, Alabama to walk the picket line or focus on the strike. The workers here have felt abandoned. And basically the issue with this strike is that these are a group of multiracial, multigender, rural, blue-collar union workers in Alabama. The Republicans know that they're a union, so they don't care about them. And Democrats see them as a lost cause, because many of them are conservative. It's a more culturally and politically conservative group of workers, so they think, oh, well, it's not worth our time. But they are. This should have been the biggest labor story in the country for the past two years. And it wasn't. And I think that says a lot about the biases and prejudices and partisan nonsense that dictate whose stories get covered and whose don't. Kim, we just have 20 seconds. But the issue of conversion, moving away from coal, and how workers are included in that discussion. Yeah, that is a big question for 20 seconds. But one thing I want to mention about these workers specifically, they mine metallurgical coal, which is not involved in the energy economy. It's used to make steel. If we went to a green economy tomorrow, these workers would still be heading down into the pits, and that coal, that met coal, would still be shipped overseas to industrialized countries. It's complicated, but the thing I want to impress listeners with is that we need to look after workers, even if we don't like the jobs they're doing. Solidarity means solidarity. And we need to work this out together as we move forward, because we can't afford to leave people behind. Elon Musk, who cannot seem to keep his name out of headlines since his mistake in purchasing the social media giant Twitter, has caught the attention of lawyers across the nation as he shoots yet another hole in his feet by publicly tweeting about firing a disabled employee for their said disability and proceeding to mock him on Twitter. One of the tweets in question stated as follows, The reality is that this guy who is independently wealthy, did no actual work, claimed as his excuse that he had a disability that prevented him from typing, yet was simultaneously tweeting up a storm. Can't say I have a lot of respect for that. In a responding tweet thread, Hi again, at Elon Musk. I hope you are well. I'm fine too. I'm thankful for your interest in my health, but since you mentioned it, I wanted to give you more info. I have muscular dystrophy. It has many effects on my body. Let me tell you what they are. My legs were the first to go. When I was 25 years old, I started using a wheelchair. It's been 20 years since that happened. In that time, the rest of my body has been failing me too. I need help to get in and out of bed and use the toilet. For a long time, I thought my arms would remain strong. A doctor told me they would, but they ended up losing strength. 
which I don't mind telling you was hard to accept. But you okay the cards you are dealt, and I've managed to create a wonderful life. My family is the best. I have two kids. I see them every day. I recommend that. My wife is fantastic. Strong, kind, smart, amazing artist. Couldn't be happier with her. About nine years ago, I started a company called at ueno.co. I worked a lot. It didn't do my body any favors, but that's what I felt I needed to do. The hard work paid off, and the company became very successful. We worked more or less with every big tech company. We grew fast and made money. I think that's what you were referring to when you say independently wealthy, that I independently made my money as opposed to, say, inherited an emerald mine. But after seven years, I was tired. COVID was running for longer than the two weeks you said it would, and my body was also continuing to get weaker. After looking at my many options, I decided to sell my company to Twitter. Financially, it wasn't the best decision. My company was making a lot of money, and Twitter's offer was lower than any smart valuation would say. But like you said, I made a bet on Twitter having a lot more potential than it has had. I joined at a time when the company was growing fast. You kind of did the opposite. There was a lot going on. The company had a fair amount of issues, but then again, most bigger companies do. Or even smaller companies, like Twitter today. Anyway, I digress. Are you still reading? Or is the bathroom break over? What was I saying? Ah, yes. Then you bought the company and told employees you weren't firing 75% of them, which you then did. I wasn't in the first batch, or the second or third or fourth. I'm not sure which layoff round I was, and there were so many. Each one came after you promised the last one was the final one. During my time at Twitter, or 2.0 as you called it, I talked to my manager every week and asked what I should focus on. And then I proceeded to do those things, every one of them. I also contacted HR regularly and asked if my job description was correct or needed updating. I wanted to make sure I was doing what I was supposed to do. They always said they were looking into it, but I never got a reply. And now finally to my fingers, which I know you have a great concern for. Thank you for that, by the way. I'll tell you what I told them. I'm not able to do manual work, which in this case means typing or using a mouse, for extended periods of time without my hands starting to cramp. I can, however, write for an hour or two at a time. This wasn't a problem in Twitter 1.0, since I was a senior director and my job was mostly to help teams move forward, give them strategic and tactical guidance. But as I told HR, I'm assuming that it's the confidential health information you're sharing, I can't work as a hands-on designer for the reason outlined above. I'm typing on this phone, by the way. It's easier because I only need to use one finger. I hope that helps. Let me know if you're going to pay me what you owe me. I think you can afford it. Elon Musk and another Galaxy Brain 40 chess move, or whatever his fanboys call it, is adding one more title to his resume, Town Owner. The multi-billionaire is reportedly working on building his own quote-unquote utopia in Texas and plans to name it Snailbrook. The Wall Street Journal reports that Musk plans to build the company town outside of Austin near his Boring and SpaceX facilities, which are currently under construction, according to the outlet. Facebook photos revealed the area already has a collection of modular homes, a pool, an outdoor sports area, and a gym, and already has signs posted that read, Welcome to Snailbrook, Texas, established 2021. According to the journal, Musk plans to include building a place for his employees to live and charging them roughly $800 per month for one- and two-bedroom homes, with the caveat that they would have 30 days to vacate the premises if they were laid off or quit. Although the plans are still in the works, it seems like a good time to ask, is this even a good idea? A lot could be said about the history of company towns, but to summarize, we would like to show you this clip by the Trillbillies on Means TV. 
So we're in Seco, Kentucky. Behind us here is the Southeast Coal Company store. And the company store was, back in the day, everything you ate, every piece of furniture you bought for your house, whatever the case may be, was bought here using the company currency, which we called Scrip. And a lot of people think that this is something that's, you know, far in the distant past, but my granddad was paid in company money until the 70s. Let's say you're a boss. <laughs> if you create your own currency, obviously you can keep more of your real U.S. dollars in your pocket because you're not playing your workers. And it's also a really effective means of social control. If you make your employees dependent on the company in every way, whether it's their mortgages, their wages, the things that they buy from the store, uh, then you have a more effective way of controlling every single aspect of their lives. And then you've made really complacent, obedient workers. And that's what every boss wants. A lot of companies are trying to do this. Uh, Amazon, you know, Amazon will offer their employees benefits in Amazon gift cards, for example. Amazon and all these companies now, they do the exact same thing for the exact same reason. They want you to be alienated. The more that they can make you dependent on the company itself, uh, that serves that purpose. If you're in the United States, wealth is built generationally, typically. People around here didn't really have the opportunity to do that because they weren't participating in the real world economy. They were paid in fake money. Uh, they you know, couldn't use that money to max out their retirement vehicles or their Roth IRAs or whatever the case may be to leave anything for the people after they died. And so what happens is you get locked into this sort of vicious cycle of generational poverty. And uh, yeah, we're still experiencing that here. So think about today you probably get your health care through your employer. That's a very advantageous system for your boss and for your employer. It makes you more dependent on them. It makes it harder for you to go take your labor somewhere else and sell it elsewhere. Well, that legacy began in places like the one behind us here. And historically, Appalachia and communities like this have been sort of the proving ground for what bosses, employers can get away with. I mean, this is tomorrow's people, man. This is everything that you want to see happening in the next 20 or 30 years. That's right here. Having here first, baby. <laughs> so don't be surprised if Mark Zuckerberg starts trying to pay his employees in Facebook books, because it's something that we've seen before. And don't take out that fucking Apple credit card. <laughs> I'm Terrence. I'm Tom. We're the Trillbillies. You're watching Means TV. Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders signed a measure this month loosening child labor protections in the state. Under the law, the Young Hiring Act of 2023, children under 16 do not have to obtain permission from the Division of Labor to get a job. They will no longer need to get an employment certificate, which verified their age, described their work and work schedule, and included written consent from a parent or guardian. Sanders signed the bill into law on Tuesday. Alexa Henning, Sanders' communication director, said that the permit requirement had placed an arbitrary burden on parents who needed government permission for their child to get a job. All child labor laws that actually protect children still apply, and we expect businesses to comply just as they are required to do so now, Henning wrote in a statement to NBC News. The move comes as the Biden administration has sought to crack down on child labor after media reports, including by NBC News, on the employment of minors, sometimes in grueling and dangerous jobs. It also comes as several other states consider legislation to undo child labor laws. Last month, the Labor Department announced it had found more than 3,800 children working at U.S. companies in violation of federal law.
More than 100 children, some as young as 13, were working hazardous overnight jobs cleaning slaughterhouses for Packers Sanitation Services, Inc., one of the country's largest food sanitation companies, the Labor Department said. Some of them used caustic chemicals to clean razor-sharp saws, the department said. Ten of the violations occurred in Arkansas. Since 2018, there has been a 69% increase in the number of children employed illegally by companies, the Labor Department has said. A retired priest who worked at a Manitoba residential school appeared in court in Winnipeg on Tuesday morning to face a charge of indecent assault against a 10-year-old girl more than 50 years ago. Arthur Massey, who worked for Fort Alexander Residential School in Sag King First Nation from 1966 to 1970, pleaded not guilty in September, he was arrested at his Winnipeg home in June 2022 after a decade-long investigation. Victoria McIntosh, who says Massey assaulted her around 1969, swore an oath on an eagle feather before testifying. An eagle staff from the First Nation was also brought into the courtroom. She says Massey came into her bathroom stall, lifted her up, pinned her against the wall with one arm, kissed her, and tried to undress her. As McIntosh ran, Massey told her not to tell anyone what happened, she said. By then, RCMP were already investigating complaints related to the school. RCMP have said allegations of sexual abuse at Fort Alexander were first brought to their attention in 2010, and they launched a criminal investigation a year later. More than 80 officers were part of the investigation, speaking to over 700 people across North America and gathering 75 witness and victim statements, RCMP have said. Massey testified Tuesday afternoon, recounting the time he spent at three different residential schools, including Fort Alexander Residential School, where he worked as both an administrator and a teacher. He denied the allegations he assaulted McIntosh and said he didn't have any memories of her at the school. Outside court, McIntosh said Tuesday was the first time she had seen Massey in decades. She said it brought back memories of when her mother took her to the step of the Fort Alexander Residential School and her handmade jacket was removed and thrown back at her mother. I felt like that little child again, at 10 years old. I held my coat that was thrown back at my mother and called savage. No, we're not, said McIntosh. Acting like a savage, doing that to a child, that's savage behavior. Several people in the courtroom wore orange shirts, a symbol of remembrance and solidarity for children forced to attend Canada's residential schools. As she left the courthouse... McIntosh said she felt good about the day's proceedings. I'm very confident that it went very well, because now this is historical, and it's not just about my case. It's Canada's secret that needs to come out, she said. Right now, I feel very light, and for a long time, I felt heavy. But to be heard, that was the main thing. I learned to work with those bad memories and think about my ancestors, my grandfather, my mother, were also survivors, she said. I owe that much to my ancestors, and I owe that much to my community of Sag King. A Native American tribe wants to reclaim 9,000 acres of Diablo Canyon land. Quote, we've been waiting. What will happen to nearly 11,000 acres of land encompassing California's last nuclear power plant when it closes? According to one proposal, about 9,000 acres of prime San Luis Obispo County real estate could return to the Native Americans who first occupied it. The future of the massive property on which Diablo Canyon Power Plant sits was the subject of a public meeting held by the California Natural Resources Agency in the San Luis Obispo County Board of Supervisors Chamber on February 10th. The agency must submit its land conservation and economic development plan for the Diablo lands to the California State Legislature by March 23rd, according to the State Senate Bill 846. That bill, which passed in September, allowed the state to loan up to $1.4 billion to PG&E to extend the life of Diablo Canyon Nuclear Power Plant until 2030, 
About five years past its originally scheduled closure date. Additionally, the bill set aside $160 million for the Land Conservation and Economic Development Plan. The plan must support environmental enhancements and access of Diablo Canyon Power Plant lands and local economic development in a manner that is consistent with existing decommissioning efforts, according to the bill. Beyond that, however, there aren't too many details of what the plan should include or how the $160 million should be spent. In general, the land, which is currently owned by PG&E and its subsidy, Eureka Energy Company, is expected to be conserved forever to prevent it from being developed, according to proposals by community groups. The 600-acre parcel where Diablo Canyon Plant resides, known as Parcel P, could be turned into a large campus for research and education on sustainable ocean practices and energy innovation. But there's one area where San Luis Obispo County community groups can't quite agree. Who gets to own the remaining 10,800 acres of land that surrounds Parcel P? Should Diablo lands granted to Native American tribe? While some community groups suggest a public entity such as California State Parks should own the land, one proposal by Reach Central Coast, an economic development think tank, the Yaktitutitu Yaktihin, Northern Chumash Tribe, Cal Poly and San Luis Obispo, and the Land Conservancy of San Luis Obispo County, request the state allow most of the land to be owned by the tribe. The group wants 4,500 acres to the north of the plant and another 4,500 to the south to be transferred to the tribe, with the Land Conservancy holding conservation easements on the land. The remaining 2,400 acres, known as Wild Cherry Canyon Lands, is under litigation in the San Luis Obispo Superior Court. The groups propose that that land be transferred to a public entity such as state parks for ownership and management, while the tribe could hold an access easement. When we were removed from this land, we were removed violently and never given the opportunity to return, said Chairwoman Mana Tucker. We've been waiting for the opportunity to become the rightful owners and also appropriate stewards so this land will look the way it looks 500 years from now, the way it looks today. If completed, the land transfer to the Native American tribe, which is not federally recognized, would be one of the largest in recent California history, according to Albert Lundin, Director of Media Relations for the State Natural Resource Agency. Neo-Nazis spewing racial slurs stormed an Ohio Drag Queen Story Hour. Neo-Nazis were among the hundreds of protesters at an Ohio Drag Queen Story Hour on March 11th, further underscoring the connection between white supremacy and anti-LGBTQ plus bigotry. The Rock and Roll Humanist Drag Queen Story Hour was organized by Aaron and Krista Joe Reed, who were promoting a children's book that introduces young ones to humanist philosophy, a belief system not rooted in religion that teaches the importance of good ethics. The event was accompanied by a short rock and roll drag celebration performance per the event description. Fittingly, proceeds from the event were donated to the Club Q survivors as well as the Cleveland-based LGBTQ plus treatment center B. Riley House, but the event was stormed by groups of neo-Nazis and White Lives Matter protesters, in addition to members of the white supremacist groups Proud Boys and Patriot Front. According to the video posted to Twitter by documentarian Ford Fisher, the neo-Nazi group Blood Tribe, wearing red sweaters and waving black flags emblazoned with white swastikas, chanted, Pedophiles get the rope. F-slurs go home, and Sieg Heil, saying the latter while raising a one-armed Roman salute. One additionally used the N-word to refer to a passerby, as Fisher wrote in his tweet. Additional videos posted show brief moments of violence between pro-drag protesters and anti-drag protesters. One man who allegedly pulled a gun on the crowd and tried to fire the weapon twice was later arrested, according to Akron Beacon Journal. 
Two people were additionally arrested and charged with misdemeanor disorderly conduct after a series of melees involving pepper spray and the violent use of a flagpole as a weapon, per the journal. The publication noted that protesters at the event vastly outnumbered supporters, although the Colorado-based group Parasol Patrol was there with rainbow umbrellas to shield children from protesters. The Beacon Journal further noted that a black reporter from the newspaper had to leave after being called a racial slur several times. Fresno Police Chief Paco Balderrama on March 1st announced the arrest of five people after a series of bombings in the city. A task force of local police and FBI agents also seized bomb-making components, firearms, methamphetamine, and white supremacist paraphernalia, including Nazi flags. The investigation ranged as far as Riverside County, where Scott Anderson, 44, the suspected bomber, was arrested together with Frank Roca, 56. Two other men are in custody after they were arrested in Fresno, Steve Burkett, 51, and Paul New, 55. Also arrested was Amanda Sanders, 41. Balderrama, at a news conference downtown, said investigators are trying to ascertain if Anderson or the other four are linked directly to known white supremacist groups. The series of bombings began December 13, 2022, with an explosion in a car, five other bombings took place from January 8th to February 21st throughout the city. Anderson, who has a criminal record that includes being a felon in possession of a firearm, is accused of detonating an explosive device and possession of firearms. Roca is accused of possession of bomb-making materials. Burkett is facing charges of possession of firearms and ammunitions as a felon. And New is facing charges of possessing firearms and explosives as a convicted felon. Sanders was charged with possession of the methamphetamine. Balderrama says that it's too early in the investigation to determine whether a hate crime had been committed or if one was planned. He also said he was concerned that the bombings were becoming more frequent and brazen. In an expose on Dallas Humber, the narrator of a neo-Nazi terrorgram and promoter of mass shootings, on October 12, 2022, a Slavic teenager used a laser-sighted gun to open fire outside a popular LGBTQ bar in, in Bratislava, Slovakia, killing two queer people and wounding a third. Feeling no regrets, isn't that funny, he tweeted. He killed himself a short time later. The 19-year-old had also tweeted a link to a 65-page screen he'd authored advocating the genocide of queer people, Jewish people, and black people. The teen mimicked and cited the writings of other white supremacist mass shooters, who he referred to as saints. And in a special thanks section, he expressed gratitude for the online community that had radicalized him. It was the first time the Telegram Collective, a neo-Nazi propaganda outfit that uses Telegram, an encrypted messaging app, to encourage acts of far-right terror and to celebrate the people who commit them, had been cited in a mass murder's twisted treaties. The Telegram Collective is at the heart of the international neo-Nazi accelerationist movement, the most extreme and explicit iteration of white supremacism, which advocates deadly violence and other acts of destruction to hasten the collapse of society so that a whites-only world can be built in its place. The Collective produces propaganda, audiobooks, videos, and memes that travel across the web in hopes of inspiring the next Christchurch suitor who killed 51 Muslims in two mosques, the next El Paso shooter who killed 22 Hispanic people in a Walmart, 
the next Pittsburgh shooter who killed 11 Jews in a synagogue, and the next Buffalo shooter who killed 10 black Americans in a grocery store. The Terrorgram Collective maintains a horrifying hagiology of these shooters, calling them saints and sanctifying their likeness with medieval-style church drawings. Last year, to the alarm of anti-fascist and counter-terror organizations, the collective produced a 24-minute documentary that glorified the murders committed by 105 quote-unquote saints over the last 50 years. Despite the extreme nature of this propaganda and its direct influence on the Bratislava shooter, the identities of the people behind the Terrorgram Collective, who use pseudonyms to post their bile, have remained unknown until now. Evidence compiled by a coalition of anonymous anti-fascist researchers, including from SoCal Research Club, at Wizard AFA, at Sunlight AFA, and Fash Free Northwest, and published this week on Left Coast Right Watch, an investigative news outlet, reveals that one of the Terrorgram Collective's main propagandists is Dallas Aaron Humber, a 33-year-old woman living in Sacramento, California. Huffington Post has corroborated the research indicating that Humber is the person behind multiple Telegram accounts associated with the Terrorgram Collective, and identifying her as the narrator of the Collective's documentaries and audiobooks. Her unmasking comes not long after another Terrorgram Collective member had, may have been identified in court documents. Brandon Russell, the founder of the neo-Nazi group Adam Waffen Division, fresh off a five-year prison stint for the unlawful storage of explosive materials, was arrested along with his girlfriend by federal authorities in Maryland earlier this month for an alleged plot to attack power stations and plunge the region into darkness. His usernames on Telegram are mentioned in federal affidavits, and archive messages show him interacting with accounts associated with Humber, the pair appearing to coordinate the release of the Terrorgram Collective's latest propaganda. Last year, after Slovakian p- police had found the body of the Slavic shooter, the Collective got to work making his 65 pro-genocide tirade into an audiobook. The Collective had done this with the writings of other mass shooters, namely for the Christchurch shooter. His manifesto inspired a wave of copycat killers whom the collective then dubbed Terence Disciples. The anti-fascist researchers followed a long trail of digital breadcrumbs to identify Humber, finding that the 33-year-old has been a neo-Nazi since her teenage years, when she became involved in various far-right communities online, many of them related to anime art. The researchers were able to compile a portrait of a rapidly radicalizing young woman who used various usernames, Pretty Dictator, The Lolita of the Far Right, Lil Lolita, Hopeless Fangirl, Lil Miss Gorehound, to eventually become her latest, most alarming self, Miss Gorehound, the narrator of Terrorgram. Last fall, two days after the shooting at the Bratislava Gay Bar, the Terrorgram Collective posted a new 24-minute documentary it had been working on for months. It was released with a last-minute dedication to the Slovakian shooter, again calling him a saint. The documentary begins with a female narrator stating, Between 1968 and 2022, 105 white men and women of action have taken it upon themselves to wage war against the system and our racial enemies. The ensuing film is a chronological celebration of these white men and women's murders, a terror reel of shootings, bombings, and bodies, all set to chilling fash wave soundtrack. The voice is Dallas Humbers, the same voice that had narrated all the collective's previous propaganda. In this latest documentary, her disturbing deadpan is used to describe some of the most horrifying episodes in recent American history. Then Humber closes the documentary with a blood-chilling invocation. To the saints of tomorrow, watching this today, she says, know that when you succeed, you will be celebrated with reverence and your sacrifice will not be in vain. 
Hail the saints and hail our glorious and bloody legacy of white terror. Earlier this month, federal authorities announced the arrest of neo-Nazi couple Brandon Russell and, and Sarah Clendaniel on charges that they were plotting to attack the Maryland power grid system. Prosecutors allege Russell, who lives in Florida, and Clendaniel, who lives in Maryland, plan to use guns to shoot five substations near Baltimore to completely destroy the city. Russell was a known quantity. He was the founder and leader of the Adam Waffen Division, an accelerationist neo-Nazi MOOP responsible for a wave of murders in 2017. Russell, then a member of the Florida National Guard, lived with three other Adam Waffen members. After one of his roommates murdered his other two roommates during a dispute inside their Tampa home, Authorities arrived and found a framed photo of Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh in Russell's bedroom. In the garage, they found that Russell had been stockpiling explosive materials. Russell skipped town, driving south with a small arsenal of guns and ammo in his car. Police eventually arrested him in Key Largo, not far from the Turkey Point nuclear power plant. Later, Russell's former roommate, the one accused of the double murder, would tell police Russell had been planning to attack the nuclear power plant. Russell was sentenced to five years in prison and was released early in August 2021. A short time later, prosecutors say he set about plotting the attack in Maryland. Federal affidavits filed in court this month reveal that Russell had been using at least two pseudonyms in encrypted data, Raccoon and Homunculus, to plan his assault on the power grids. Those same pseudonyms appeared in archive chats preserved by the anti-fascist researchers investigating Dallas Humber. A Republican state senator in Florida has introduced a bill that, if passed, would require bloggers who write about Governor Ron DeSantis, his cabinet, or state legislators to register with the state. Senator Jason Brodeur's bill, titled Information Dissemination, would also require bloggers to disclose who's paying them for their posts about certain elected officials and how much. If a blogger posts to a blog about an elected state official and receives or will receive compensation for that post, the blogger must register with the appropriate office within five days of the post, the legislation says. It defines elected state officer as the governor, the lieutenant governor, a cabinet officer, or any member of the legislature. Failing to register would result in a fine of $25 per day, and the penalty would be capped at $2,500 per posting, NBC affiliate WFLA of Tampa reported. The bill says that bloggers' reports to the state must include the individual or entity that compensated the blogger for the blog post and the amount of compensation received from the individual or entity. The bill defines a blog as a website or webpage that hosts any blogger and is frequently updated with opinion, commentary, or business content. But it says the term does not include the website of a newspaper or other similar publication. DeSantis's office said Friday it was reviewing the bill. As usual, the governor will consider the merits of a bill in final form if and when it passes the legislature, said his press secretary, Brian Griffin. Ron Kuby, a First Amendment lawyer in New York, said the law would not survive a court challenge if it is passed. Other headlines that we found that we thought were worth a mention. Uniquely evil Minnesota Republican Steve Drzowski votes against free school lunches because hunger is a relative term. South Carolina bill to execute people who have abortions gets support from 21 Republicans. An ivermectin influencer died. Now his followers are worried about their own severe symptoms. Ninth grader sues school district after a staffer allegedly physically assaulted her when she didn't recite the Pledge of Allegiance. For links to all these headlines, check out our show notes at sabomedia.noteblogs.org. Next up, our radical news roundup from other autonomous media organizations that we follow. 
Unicorn Riot is a decentralized, educational, 501c3, nonprofit media organization of journalists. Unicorn Riot engages and amplifies the stories of social and environmental struggles from the ground up. They seek to enrich the public by transforming the narrative with accessible and non-commercial independent content. You can find the following articles on their website at unicornriot.ninja. March 2nd, 2023. Minneapolis Teachers Union and cops battle over student recruitment. And Israeli forces kill 11 Palestinians and shoot over 100 during raid on Nablus. March 4th. Stop Cop City Week of Action begins in Atlanta. March 5th. Police raid Atlanta Forest after Cop City opponents overrun security post. March 10th. Don't let them kill VO.me. Decades-long Greek factory occupation threatened. March 12th. What is the Lukov March and why was it banned in Bulgaria? March 13th. Triple bank collapse hit Silicon Valley in New York amid economic downturn. And Manuel Tortuguita Tehran's independent autopsy report released at press conference. March 14th. FBI bookstore spying in Chicago eyes abortion rights, cop city, and anti-development activists. March 16th. Dancing Revolution, How 90s Protests Used Rave Culture to Reclaim the Streets. March 17th, Anti-Protest Measure Passes Minneapolis City Council. March 18th, A Historic Direct Action in a Forest Outside Atlanta. March 19th, Hashtag Fees Must Fall, South Africa's Student Movement for Free Education. March 20th, The Case of Marvin Haynes Part 3, The Framing of Marvin Haynes. March 21st, Behind the Hashtag Stop Cop City Domestic Terrorism Warrants. March 23rd, FBI informant microchip surfaces in white supremacist election interference trial. March 24th, ahead of the final four, Houston criminalizes homelessness. And eight remain in jail for March 5th, Willani Forest Raid, 15 released. March 26th, Acrylate Water Safety Emergency hits Philly. Residents scramble for bottled water. And March 29th, Administrative detention and medical neglect in Israeli prisons lead to death and protests. It's going down, and you're invited for what they're selling. We ain't buying, there is no running, there is no hiding, there's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center for anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements across so-called North America. Their mission is to provide a resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. You can find the following articles on their website at itsgoingdown.org. March 1st. Cities across the U.S. take part in a week of action against Cop City. In memory of the unyielding anarchist rebel, Librado Rivera, in Contempt number 26, Fight to Free Mumia Continues, Keith Lamar on Hunger Strikes, Repression Ramps Up. March 2nd, Davis to protest Charlie Kirk tour after CEO calls for trans people to be taken care of the way we used to in the 1950s. March 6th, the amount of solidarity is incredibly here. Voices of the front lines on the fight to stop Cop City. Fire Ant, Anarchist Prisoner Solidarity number 15. We Got Us, a case study and reflections on supporting an arrestee from the 2020 uprisings. Anti-fascist drop banner against grade-A grifter Jordan Peterson in Vancouver. Report back from rally in solidarity with resistance to Cop City in Avon, Massachusetts. Message from Yaqui political prisoner Fidencio Aldama to the National Indigenous Congress. March 7, 2023. Freedom for Manuel Gomez Vesquez, member of Zapatista support basis. 
Temporary occupation in New York City calls for a divestment from Cop City in Atlanta, Georgia. March 8th, the show must go on, on Sunday's arrest at the South River Music Festival. Atlanta, Georgia, Elders Say Stop Cop City, Canadian Tire Fire number 55, CGL and TMX updates, Immigration Policy, and Fighting, and fighting Encampment Evictions. March 9th, Ron DeSantis, Interstate Autocrization, and Building Resistance. March 12th, report back from noise demo in support of those facing domestic terrorism charges in Atlanta, Georgia. Gulfgate tenants fight back against abusive slumlords. March 13th, community defense blocks Sacramento Proud Boys from disrupting children's event. Mutual aid and banner drops push back on ongoing attacks on the houseless in Aberdeen, Washington. Dungeons and Dugan, how an alliance of authoritarians hopes to destroy a politics of solidarity. March 14th, Montreal banner drop for Wallani forest defenders. March 15th, report from New York City rally in solidarity with, with Alfredo Cospito. March 16th, ARC campaign for the freedom of Manuel Gomez Vasquez. March 17th, this is America number 183, report from Atlanta during week of action against Cop City. March 18th, kite line, we have to stick together. Charlie Kirk and Proud Boys confronted at UC Davis. March 19th, Final straw, felony littering trials underway in Asheville. March 20th, we are not in the least afraid of ruins, food autonomy in the Willani Forest. March 21st, April 28th through 30th, second biannual call for weekend of distro. March 22nd, Corvallis against fascism, five years of Nazi tears. Community defense organizations disrupt transphobic rally in Jefferson City, Missouri. March 23rd, South Florida Anti-Repression Committee launches Solidarity Campaign. March 24th, This is America, number 184, Eric King prepares for release, interview with directors of Elements of Mutual Aid. March 24th, Canadian Tire Fire, number 56, International Day Against Police Brutality, protesting grocery store price gouging, mining convention disrupted. March 27th, Announcing Anathema, Volume 9, Issue 1. March 27th, report back from Sweep Defense in Houston, Texas. March 27th, eviction is murder, remembering UC. March 29th, rally in D.C. demands end to repression of forest defenders in Atlanta. Crime Thought is everything that evades control. Crime Think is a rebel alliance. Crime Think is a banner for anonymous collective action. Crime Think is an international network of aspiring revolutionaries. Crime Think is a desperate venture. Check out these articles at crimethink.com. March 2nd, Defending Abundance Everywhere, a call to every community from the Walani Forest. March 8th, Jin Jayan Azadi, Woman, Life, Freedom, Genealogy of a Slogan. March 16th, Disaster of State, on the Earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. March 22nd, France, the Movement Against the Pension Reform, on the Threshold of an Uprising. March 27th, A Coup d'État in Israel. The Bitter Harvest of Colonialism, and March 30th, France in Flames, Macron attempts to crush the movement against the pension reform with lethal violence. And now it's time for a musical break. So here's the song Police State by Dead Prez. Hit it! You have the emergence in human society of this thing that's called the state. What is the state? The state is this organized bureaucracy. It is the police department. It is the army, the navy. It is the prison system, the courts, and what have you. This is the 
organization. But the state is here. Well, you know, you've got to have the police, because if there were no police, look at what you'd be doing to yourselves. You'd be killing each other if there were no police. But the reality is, the police become necessary in human society. At the precinct, you know how we think. Organize the hood under I Ching banners. Red, black, and green instead of gang bandanas. FBI spying on us through the radio antennas. And I'm hitting cameras in the street like watching society. With no respect for the people's right to privacy. I take a slug for the cause like Huey P. While all you fake niggas try to copy Master P. I wanna be free to live, able to have what I need to live. Bring the power back to the street where the people live. We sick of working for crumbs and filling up the prisons. Dying over money and relying on religion for help. We do for self like ants in a colony. Organize the wealth into a socialist economy. A way of life based off the common needs. And all my comrades is ready, we just spreading the seed. Live a third of his life in a jail cell Cause the world is controlled by the white male And the people don't never get justice And the women don't never get respected And the problems don't never get solved And the jobs don't never pay enough So the rent always be late Can you relate? No more bondage, no more political monsters, no more secret space launches. Government departments started it in the projects, material objects, thousands up in the closets. Could have been invested in the future for my comrades. Battle contacts, primitive weapons out in combat. Many never come back, pretty niggas be running with gas. Rabbit get shot in they back, then fire back. We're tired of that. Corporations hiring blacks, denying the facts, exploiting us all over the map. That's why I write the shit I write in my rap. It's documented, I meant it. Every day of the week, I live in it, breathing it. It's more than just fucking believing it. I'm holding them ones, rolling up my sleeves and shit. It's C-Lo for push-ups now, many-headed for one conclusion. Niggas ain't ready for revolution. Yeah, I've been blackmailed, live a third of his life in a jail cell. Cause the world is controlled by the white male. And the people don't never get justice. And the women don't never get respected. And the problems don't never get solved. And the jobs don't never pay enough. So the rent always be late. Can you relate? We living in a police state. Welcome back to Molotov Now. It's time for us to read the article entitled The Problem with Good Cops from the Harbor Rat Report. Every day people in this town who are unhoused and spend their nights along the city streets of Aberdeen are moved along each day by the police in this town. Even those in camps allowed by the city are routinely swept out of their spots to quote-unquote clean. This process of cleaning involves moving people out of the structures they've built 
and demolishing them, along with any belongings that they aren't able to remove in time. This causes untold instability as compared to the old river camp, where people were able to build structures and have a stable place to camp. The police helped to evict this long-term camp by the Chehalis River in 2019 and continue to keep people from entering the unused city portion of the property today. Yeah, when the city refuses entry to their unused property, they force people to occupy private property in city streets, often local business owners downtown. This functions as another manufactured problem, intended to drive people into the downtown streets and upset local business people. The city knows that the business community is primed and ready to blame the unhoused for their low profits, and this can be an easy way to legitimize the push for eradication of of this now demonized population. Yeah, if they had just let them keep that property and even helped to provide sanitation and water services... Then they could have prioritized housing people over the last four years. They don't just move them along, they arrest them too. True. And it's not just that one property by the river. The city owns hundreds of properties, many of which could be used to house an entire encampment if they so wanted to. One property was planned for just that, and they abandoned it. Well, back to the article. As organizers in this community, we are frequently told of the harassment by the city and the police, including this constant shuffling, the throwing away of personal belongings, and the arrests of people for crimes of poverty such as petty theft, driving on a suspended license, or illegal camping. The police commit these acts under the guise of helping, but they clearly serve the city government, not the community. Police in this town are complicit, and in fact active, in the eliminationist plans of the city. Their position above us in the system of state hierarchy results in looking down at people in need and feeling superior, rather than contemptuous, whether they feel any guilt for their position of privilege or not. But they enforce policies that amount to genocide. They will never feel a bond of solidarity with those struggling under the oppressive system police uphold. Can we really be proud of police who attempt to use their position to undo a tiny fraction of the pain caused by the system they enforced in the first place? Yeah, they also have an incredible amount of discretion to arrest or not when they are working their beat. If they like you, they are more likely to let you go with a warning than if they don't like you. Doug, do you have any examples of instances in which the police have utilized their discretion like that? Yeah, I do. It reminds me of a time me and a friend of mine, Jeff Sletton, and a couple of us were standing out front Jeff's house talking when an Aberdeen police officer drove by. I'm sure when he drove by, he recognized a few of us standing there, but he stopped and asked us our names. Um, of course, after asking us our names, he come back and he told Jeff that Jeff had a warrant for his arrest. Jeff asked what the warrant was for, and the officer told him that he had missed a court date, and Jeff said he wasn't where he had that court date. He didn't, you know, intentionally miss it or anything. Could they just give him another court date and he'd be there? And the officer told him, no, they couldn't, that he was under arrest. The jail had already confirmed the warrant and that they were going to take him. Jeff got excited and tried to explain to the officer that he had just gotten this house, and if they arrested him, he would be in jail when his rent was due, and he wouldn't be able to pay his rent, and he'd miss the, he, he would end up losing his house that he had just gotten, and he really couldn't do that because he didn't want to end up living on the streets again. He'd actually really fought hard to get this place. And the officer told him, well, that's basically his problem. There's nothing he can do about it. They have a warrant for his arrest, and they're going to be taking him to jail. Jeff got pretty excited, and he started screaming at the cop, fine, if you take me to jail and I end up losing my house, when I get out of here, I'm going to camp in the bushes across the street from your house until I can find another place to live. (laughs) At that time, the officer went back to his car, was on his radio for a minute or two, came back and said, okay, Jeff, we're going to give you a court date. (laughs) I think that's because they knew Jeff was pretty serious about, you know, if he said he do it he was going to do it that's praxis <laughs> yeah that's that discussion that we were talking about yeah they say that they don't 
have it whenever they want to arrest you. But when it, to, to their advantage, they can figure out a way to, you know, not have to enforce it. Yeah, they use it to pull over people they know or like or looks like them. Then they'll let them go with a warning or a pretty lady or whatever. Or if it's close to the end of their shift and they don't want to have to do a lot of paperwork, they can give you another court date. Or it might just be, have they eaten yet today? Yeah. Did they miss lunch? Are they hungry a little bit? Yeah. But mostly it's about generating revenue. Or if their quotas are down, of course, they've got to take you. Yeah, well, that's just like me driving to work. There's been times where where I've worked, there is no bus schedule or no way to get there. I've had no ride, so I've really got no choice but if I want to work, to drive. And it's a catch-22 if I drive. If I do the speed limit, the speed limit, or traffic's usually going faster than the speed limit. So the cop can pick out whoever at random and pulls you over. But if I do the speed limit, which traffic is going faster, if I stand out, you know, because I'm going slower in traffic, and the cops pull me over. And all I'm trying to do is go to work. So they use this discretion... And the fact that, you know, people are breaking laws technically at any time to pull people over whenever they want to so that they can try and make a case against you when they want. Basically. I don't remember what I read it in, but the average person breaks the law, I think it was like four times before leaving the house each day or before lunchtime each day. Yeah, because there's so many of them on the books and so many of them are arbitrary and you don't even know what they are. So referencing back to the so-called good cops who do what they can to, to differentiate themselves from the truisms of civil abuse that plague most officers, they still more often than not can still cause harm with their state-mediated assistance. Similar to the critiques of the intersection of billionaire philanthropy and the nonprofit industrial complex, there are many problems that can arise with resources or so-called assistance being administrated by a sole arbiter with a position of authority as the one who makes the decisions on how those resources or assistance is doled out, such as resources being wasted and mismanaged by nonprofits who launder the money of the rich, spending millions of dollars from donations on things like sleeping bags and tents for the homeless, when what people really need is housing. Or say when an officer arrests someone with the hope of getting them help in prison, when in actuality this just locks them into the cycle of prisons and poverty. Yeah, that's a great critique to bring up. The idea that one person can even make such a decision is kind of the point. Why should one person, such as a police officer, be the one who decides your fate? The amount of discretion they have in making arrests is a huge source of abuse. We can always focus on the good stories of when a cop you know or whatever lets you off with a warning, but those stories are simply stories of privileged population. Those stories erase the stories that we don't hear as often, when the officer decided not to be lenient and give a warning, but decided to enforce a law and conduct an arrest. Their decision is a decision that can affect a person's entire life, and yet they make them based on things like familiarity with the suspect, how hungry they are at the time of the interaction, or whether or not the person in question shows them what they feel like is the proper respect. People want to give the nice cop that let them go some sort of award, but the fact that they had the ability to let you go is precisely what we are critiquing here, because they don't let everyone go without warning, and they get to decide who goes and who doesn't. Yeah, I'd like to see what else this article has to say about all that. Yeah, let's get back to the article now. The so-called rotten apple theory of police abuse is held by both police commanders and their allies. It states that it is the exception to the rule when police officers commit abuses, and that it is a tiny minority of officers who do so. It is, in other words, a means of protecting the organization from scrutiny and of avoiding change. The problem with this mentality is that it is not the individual who is to blame for the level of violence we see in police departments across the country. Police sympathizers will say that it is unfair to blame the whole police department for the actions of a few, and yet this is an obfuscation 
of the issue at hand. We claim that the root of police violence is the institution itself, and the state gives them their monopoly on legitimate violence. These are institutional critiques, and you cannot remove them from the discussions of individual police officers. By being a part of the institution of policing, all officers are complicit in the worst of its abuses. When police here show up to an unhoused encampment eviction, it's not to provide assistance, it is to ensure compliance. The city would not be able to enforce these harmful policies if the police didn't show up with their guns and the ability to arrest anyone who stood up to oppose the eviction. The quote-unquote rotten apple theory first appeared in the Knapp Commission report released in 1973. This theory holds that any police misconduct is the result of individual officers deviating from the standard policy. Organizational and institutional factors are downplayed or outright ignored. This model perceives police corruption as a rotten apple in a clean barrel. In other words, it is an individualistic model of deviance. In contrast to the rotten apple theory, the rotten barrel theory emphasizes organizational influences and factors. It is the barrel making the apple rotten. Man, why do we have to keep dealing with these ridiculous fucking hypotheticals? We aren't talking about a barrel of apples here. We're talking about the structure of policing. These hypotheticals only serve to flatten a discussion full of nuance and complexity. This drive to turn every conversation about complex issues into a simple hypothetical is fucking infuriating. Well, the idea of removing rotting apples from a barrel full of apples is great when you're dealing with a barrel of apples, and not an organization of violent and well-armed individuals who are given ultimate social authority. And yeah, it doesn't make much sense to couch things in these terms, but even in academic papers, it is what they use to describe their theories. The article goes on. The rotten apple theory has argued that deviant police officers bring their undesirable traits into the policing profession when they are hired. In this view, the solution becomes perhaps increased psychological screening for officers, keeping potential bad apples out of the barrel. Studies have found that many police officers display sociopathic and antisocial personalities. They have found that since the environment in which police work provides unlimited opportunities for corruption and abuse, many officers tend to have sociopathic traits. But these reforms and safeguards do not address the root of the problem, the institution of policing itself. The very idea that sociopaths can be screened is absurd on its face. The very definition of a sociopath means that they would be able to get around such screenings with ease. Yeah, people with antisocial personality disorder tend to purposely make others angry or upset and manipulate people. They also don't care if they hurt people while they do so. They usually lack remorse and do not regret their behaviors. People with this disorder are not just going to be screened out with a questionnaire. Exactly. A sociopath isn't incapable of being nice or a decent person in contrast to harming people. They often do their best to act like one in front of those that it is advantageous for them to do so. It's not that they can't do these things, it's that they have made a conscious choice not to. Screening for sociopaths in a profession specifically built to attract them is laughable for the simple fact that sociopaths lie. Back to the article. Over the last three decades, the structural theory or rotten barrel theory of corruption has gained more attention. As more and more scholars have looked deeper into the history and subculture of policing, they have come to realize that corruption is an inherent feature of policing, that it is ingrained into the structure itself. In his book, Character and Cops, Ethics in Policing, Edwin J. Delatre explains that as a young, naive naive individual enters a profession where the worst of people is exposed to them, they are socialized to this environment by senior officers who have become cynical and lost faith in police work. Under pressure to form bonds of mutual trust and reliance while witnessing corrupt practices, it's realized that superiors don't support efforts to behave honorably. 
that sanctions for corruption are negligible, and the young officer will probably accept the status quo and join in the corrupt practices. There is now a huge body of work that supports this theory, as seen in the numerous reports of corruption within units and entire departments themselves. Officers tend to only associate and socialize with each other because of all the social isolation brought on by the job. When the public at large complains about police work, they claim that the public is being misled and that they have misconceptions about police. This serves to reinforce the bonds of the profession. This need to bond together forms what is called a siege mentality, where it is us versus them. Trust between officers up and down the chain of command is important, and since supervisors are already socialized in this way, they are more likely to have already accepted certain levels of corruption and brutality as minor things. These behaviors are minimized by the organization to stabilize the overall system. Individual police officers can have their own values subverted and corrupted through the social norms of the group. The, quote, brotherhood demanded by the job can detract from their moral belief system and cause them to do things on the job that they would not do to a person in their normal life. The structure of policing provides officers with the incentive of a unique kind of social authority. It also gives them a high degree of discretion and a low degree of supervision. Most bureaucratic institutions, like police departments, contain hierarchical qualities that facilitate abuse and deviance. The division of labor into specialized units, limited career mobility, and the distinct subculture that values maintenance of the status quo above all. These are structural and systemic issues, not individual ones. We cannot reform or modify this structure to achieve anything else. It does what it does incredibly well. This is not a broken system. It is one designed to impose the will of the ruling class on the poor and marginalized. What is needed is something that prioritizes people's safety and addresses the root causes of harm in society, not brutal gangs with unlimited power. This article hits it on in those. It truly is unlimited power. Which is a District of Columbia Court of Appeals case that held that the police do not owe a specific duty to provide police services to the specific citizens based on the public duty doctrine. Or you can even look at Castle Rock versus Gonzalez. That's a United States Supreme Court case in which the court ruled 7-2, to two, that a town and its police department could not be sued under U.S. Code 42, Section 1983, for failing to enforce a restraining order which had led to the murders of a woman's three children by her estranged husband. The decision has become infamous and condemned by several human rights groups. This means that the motto, to serve and protect, is absolute bullshit. That is not the role of police, that is propaganda. These rulings have been used time and time again to shield officers from just scrutiny when they have failed to live up to the lies that they have told the public they serve. For. Wasn't Warren a case where a cop was on a train with a guy who was getting stabbed right in front of him and the cop didn't do anything? No, I don't believe so, but the interesting thing about that event was that these two rulings, Warren v. District of Columbia and Castle Rock v. Gonzalez, I believe were used to keep that officer from facing a lawsuit from the man who had stopped the subway serial killer, while the local newspapers proceeded to sing praises for the officer who cowered behind the door and spoke nothing of the man who actually stopped the serial killer. Yeah, that's fuck. Anyway, the article continues. Bad apples do exist, but that's not the issue either. The fact that some people are abusers is precisely why we shouldn't have the position of police. It invites too much abuse and corruption. We can find terrible sociopaths in many occupations, but only the police are given such inordinate amounts of power and lethal control over the population. When the profession in question is policing, it should be clear that the threat is too great to allow anyone to have that much power and discretion. We need to have systems of justice and safety that are responsive and accountable to us. 
This is exactly the same argument that can be made for any position of authority. From police to politicians to parents to bosses, no one should be elevated to a position of authority over another person. That is the basis for abuse. Because if there was no power imbalance in a relationship between two people, then they would not be able to exert control over each other, meaning there could be no abuse. It is those structures of power imbalances, hierarchies, that lead to abuse of authority in the first place. So if we do away with those imbalances of power, we can then reduce the instances of abuse as well. The article goes on. The anarchist theory of the state holds that the state is a tool by which a small group of people rule a large group of people against their interest. Police enforce this rule through displaying overwhelming force against criminalized populations. This force is the only socially acceptable form of violence within the envisioned society. People are not to commit acts of aggression against one another or the state, but the state grants itself the ability to meter out violence against those deemed criminals. The society accepts this, and thus the power of the state is wielded at the hands of the police. Every utterance from the mouth of a politician is a police order. Without the police to enforce their will over ours, they would be nothing. The prison industrial complex is a term used to describe the overlapping interests of government and industry which use surveillance, policing, and incarceration as solutions to economic, social, and political problems. Individuals in the ruling class use this apparatus to extract profits from the brutal enslavement of a portion of the population, with people made to work in prison labor camps for little to no money. These profits come at the expense of the poor and vulnerable who are preyed upon by the state to fill their prisons and jails. Well, not only the state, but also private in individuals and industries, uh, like Bob Barker Industries. Uh, not the same Bob Barker to be confused with the talk show host, but another individual who has made millions off selling the prison systems, all their hygiene supplies, toothpaste, toothbrush, shampoo, stuff like that, that they sell to the inmates inside. For a um, huge... A very <laughs> huge markup. Um, he's also pushed for the privatization of prisons. Um, I'm not exactly sure which ones he owns, but I know there's prisons, for instance, in Arizona that are privately owned that our state pays to house what's considered to be our overpopulation of inmates and stuff like that. An overpopulation of inmates that we're shutting down prisons here because we don't have the inmates to fill. You know, uh, that really hasn't made a lot of sense to me. And our state will pay this person to house our, our inmates for them. And inside each one of these prisons is some sort of major factory. You've got Quallen Bay has the gene factory that they make a lot of the state-issued clothing and stuff like that. Walla Walla has a furniture factory that makes a lot of state-issued furniture. Stafford Creek has a powder coat pack. All of these that they pay the inmates a matter of cents per hour, you know, 20, 30 cents an hour to work at. And out of that, that they, it's, they get away with it because they're not actually paying us. It's a gratuity that they give us for doing the work. We do the work for free. They give us a gratuity. Which makes more sense. Okay. And out of that gratuity, they take one third for cost of incarceration that I thought was you know, federally paid for the state prison systems were federally funded and got money for, but they take one third for that cost of incarceration. They take another third for legal financial obligations, which, you know, child support, things like that, people do need to pay. And then if you're lucky and you haven't had to go to the doctor while you're in prison or see a dentist while you're in prison or something they made you do while you're in prison that they charge you for and they take another third of, if you're lucky and you don't owe that debt, you get the remaining third to buy their products that they sell you. For example, in prison, they'll sell you a little 12-inch uh, color TV that's the same TV you'd go to Sears, pick up for, you know, 
75 bucks or so, they'll sell you for 300 in prison. And if you don't have a job in prison to earn the money to do this, your family's allowed to send you the money. It rings really similar to like the old company towns. I was yeah. going to say, it sounds like a company store, and, but and, one you can't leave. And, <laughs> and, and if your family decides because you don't have a job in prison, do they want to be nice enough and buy you this TV? They have to send you the money for it. And again, they take one third of the, for the cost of incarceration. They take another third for legal financial obligation. And again, if you're lucky and don't owe any prison debt, you'll get the remaining third to go to your TV. So a TV that would normally cost you 50, 75 bucks at Sears, you're looking at several hundred dollars for to be able to purchase in prison yeah. in the end. And they make money like this hand over fist, you know, off all of us. And this cost of incarceration, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I read an article about it once. Um, because the prison system buys things in such bulk, they get it for pennies on the dollar compared to what most people would. On top of that, the things that they buy us, for instance, our food. If you've ever worked in, the pr in a kitchen in the prison system, you'll notice a lot of the foods are labeled not meant for human consumption. Really? What it is, is it's sold for livestock feed, but the prison feeds it to us. Um, I found it rather funny at one of the prisons when working in the kitchen. We had boxes of fish patties that you read the labeling on the side, and they're made from fresh, or yeah, they were boxes of fish patties made from chicken byproduct. And we had fish or uh, chicken patties that, if you read on the side of the box, said they were made from pressed hake. So we've got chicken patties made from fish and fish patties made from chicken. This is one hell of a system. I can't imagine how gross that food is. Uh, the whole thing's based on money. You know, it's not based on rehabilitation anymore. There may have been a time there might have been some sort of rehabilitation to teaching. I mean, granted, there are people in society that do make poor choices. They do need to pay for the choices they made or the wrongs that they've done. But this system isn't based on that. It's based on reincarceration. I go, I get in trouble. They sentence me to prison. On top of that, going to prison, they sentence me so much in fine. Okay, I do my prison time, which in prison to, for instance, say, I went to prison once over a firearms charge that was related to a drug deal. I made one. They ripped me off. I, went, I simply went there to get my money that they'd taken from me. They were planning on robbing me again. Someone handed me a pistol to defend myself. I went to prison over that. I agree. I probably needed drug and alcohol counseling at the time. Um, anger management might have been a good thing to sentence me to at the time. Mm -hmm. Parenting classes, because I had children at the time that this happened. But these are all programs that I fought tooth and nail to be able to try and get while I was in prison. And some of them couldn't get in prison. Really? Okay. Then when I get out of prison, I'm told I have to take all these classes and do all this. <laughs> but now I have to do it at my expense instead of the prison paying for it or anything else. Yeah. And doing it at my expense, I have to maintain a job, which being a convicted felon, getting a job is going to be difficult enough. But getting one that's going to pay me enough to be able to pay my bills, support my family, pay for my license to get back because I'm going to have to pay a bunch of fines to get my license back and be able to go to work legitimately. It's set up for the people to fail um, for a long time. And it's my own fault. I got in trouble in a number of different places I went to. But I would get out. I'd owe $100 to this county, $100 to this city, $100 to that city. And they want it every month. Okay, well, I've got $1,500 in payments they want between all these different cities and counties. I couldn't realistically pay that, but I did make an honest effort to pay what I could. So 
I would take care of my bills, and this month I'd pay this court, this court, and this court. Then the next month would come around, I'd take care of my bills, and with the leftover, I'd pay that court, that court, and that court. And I'd just do it in a rotation and giving it to them. Yeah. But by the time the third month come around, I had several warrants for my arrest, you know, <laughs> because I hadn't paid fines in these other places, yeah. or I hadn't paid enough in these places. So they'd take me back to jail. They would add to my fines, because now I have court costs again. In that time, I've lost my house, or my job, or anything else. It's a vicious cycle. And then be released again and told to do it all over again. And if you somehow manage to start to get ahead in that, they yard you right back in and start you again. And it's over yeah. and over and over. And I went through that system for years. And in all honesty, when I got out in 2002, if it weren't for bending the rules to be able to get by, I would have never made it out for the 18 years that I stayed out. You know? yeah. it, 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 if I went by their rules, their system, I would have been arrested dozens of times over and back in jail because I wasn't able to comply with what they set up for me to do. Yeah. Recidivism is huge. I want to keep you in there. Well, and that's why I said it's based on reincarceration, not rehabilitation. This is Grace Harbor County. Our motto is come on vacation, leave on probation, return for violation. Yeah, it's the results of retributive justice systems, and that's a lot of what abolition uh, seeks to change is uh, to change this idea of retributive justice with one of restorative justice. Yeah. Something that actually addresses the harm being caught. Like wonder, you said, something that actually, okay, you need anger management and, and help with parenting. These resources, you need resources. We don't need to take things from, we need to actually give you things. <laughs> well, and that, in the prison system, there are some of those programs available, okay? And for me at that particular time, I was sentenced to four and a half years in prison. Mm -hmm. Those were mandatory requirements of my sentencing is that I take this class, this class, and this class. Right. And I had four and a half years to take those classes. But those classes weren't given to me in prison. Those are classes I had to fight tooth and nail to get in prison. The people that got those classes in prison were the guys that are doing life sentences. They're not getting out. Or have 40, 50 years that before they're going to get out, you know, those guys would get those classes. The mm -hmm. guys that are short-term, doing four or five years, that are actually going to be able to take this knowledge and apply it to better their lives and do things aren't given those classes. They want you to wait till you get out and take the classes, yeah. which at the time you get out, now you have to pay for it rather than the state providing it for you. Yeah. Well, they don't want to pay. Yeah. And that profit motive is, <clears throat> and they have such huge profits. It's not like they're maintaining this shoestring budget, you know. Oh, like, no. <laughs> they make so much money and it's never enough. It's just, just above slave labor. It's the new slave labor. It is. Yeah. I mean, the 13th Amendment outlaws slavery in every form except for punishment for a crime. Anyway, back to the article. Well, it outlaws slavery except for a crime, but it also makes everything a crime now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, one, no, seriously, like once they made that ruling, a lot of things became illegal that weren't illegal before. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. they need that. Imagine what would happen to the the economy if we just had no prison labels. It was very shortly after the uh, um, freeing of the slaves and whatnot that vagrancy laws and homelessness yeah. becoming illegal it was started becoming ideas that were actually prevalent in uh, the United States where before that's not a thing anybody ever thought. That's not a thing people were all worked up over. Like, people moved out west from the east to be homeless, to go homestead. Like, these weren't things that existed prior to the end of slavery. It is a colonialist construct that we have brought with us and forced upon this land. Yeah, and we're going to be getting into some of that history a little bit later. But for now, let's continue with the article. 
So this is the function of the police, to enforce the decisions and protect the interests of the ruling class and impose their will on the people through violence. Police organizations hold a large share of the blame for police violence, not simply individual officers. With the complexity of modern police departments, brutality may be encouraged from below or above and can adapt to many conditions. Both formally and informally, these organizations and their hierarchical nature tend to push people towards a climate of tolerating and even promoting unnecessary violence. The more formal aspects of policing that lead to violence is the training given to officers, the priorities in the field, what money and time is spent on, and the system of promotions that it offers. On the other hand, when police culture itself, as well as informal occupational norms, are the support base for violent tendencies, then this brutality can arise from below. The thin blue line mentality, the code of silence, indifference to the problems of police brutality, generalized suspicion of the population, and the intense demand for personal respect can be counted in this regard. The average officer regards the public as the enemy and feels that their occupation is in conflict with the community. These collective experiences and feelings give rise to the shared belief that police need to be secret and insular in their dealings. The persistent refusal to deal with violent abuses with proper legal consequences is also another check in the column of systemic police abuses. Even when an individual officer disapproves of an act of violence, it is necessarily condoned by the organization that seeks to protect and defend each officer involved in allegations of abuse, applying as few consequences as possible. What about you, Doug? Can you think of any time any type of officer was bitten in the ass by the system for attempting to be a quote-unquote good cop? Well, in the prison system, there are, on occasion, those one or two officers that it's not that they go out of their way to treat you well or do anything special for you. It's just that they treat you with basic human respect and dignity. Right. Um, those officers, the other officers see that. They don't particularly care for that. So they end up, those officers will get the shitty shifts or, you know, get stuck doing paperwork and stuff after their shift ends on different things or, you know, just shitty little details in the job that they'll get stuck with more often than the other officers. And after a while, you'll see it jades their opinion and how they treat the inmate, you know. So their good nature is actually punished. To a degree, yeah. And, and that's why you won't see an officer. I mean, in the time I was there, there's one or two officers I felt tre treated me basically, you know, I wasn't looking for any special treatment or anything like that. Just treat me with respect. You know, don't talk down to me. Don't belittle me or anything else. I'm there. I know I made a mistake. I'm just simply there to do my time and get past it and go home. I'm not there to be treated any worse or anything else, you know. But those few that do give you that respect or, you know, at least talk to you with some sort of respect, in time, that changes, you know. They, and I'm sure those officers learn, oh, don't act. You yeah. got to be tough. You got to be hard. You got to be on top. And, and it's very few, very, very few and far between that will remain, that will maintain that. Uh, you know, no matter what, they're going to treat you it as takes a human being. I mean, and I understand it. They go through a lot of shit from their own side for treating you that way. I can see officers change over time and being there for a length of time. You see the newer officers, how their attitudes start and how they are when you leave and stuff. Well, when the bad officers are acting worse towards you out of spite, like, why are they treating you so good? I can see where it, it can jade your opinion of some people, you know. But not all people in there are bad people. Some people are there. It's a victim of circumstance or economy or, you know, a number of other things that have gotten people locked up. Not that they're initially bad people. 
They were just put in bad decisions and made some, or put in bad positions and made some desperate decisions. Well, we've created these institutions where instead of when someone's having these social problems and this antisocial behavior, instead of being placed in a situation where they're surrounded by the, their peers and loved ones and trying to work through these problems and fi- figure out what's going wrong and try to correct that, we lock them in a box with people who are going to, um, more often than not, because of the situation they're in, exacerbate their uh, worst inhibitions. And it's worth acknowledging that all of this only applies to poor people, you know? Yeah. Hey, like, if you got money, it doesn't matter if you're antisocial or a criminal or... Just look at Elon Musk. sociopath or anything. Like, you're going to be fine. Well, generally, you're sitting in county jail and you see people going to court. The ones that paid for their attorneys themselves generally don't do too much time. Yeah. The ones that are dependent on the court-appointed attorneys, okay? And they read you this, and I've said it before and heard it said before. You know, the judge reading off your rights about how you have the right to this, the right to that. You have a right to an attorney. And if one can't be afforded, one will be appointed for you. Well, what kind of defense do you expect when the people that are trying to prosecute you are providing that defense for you? Yeah. Same team playing two sides of the court. Mm-hmm. I, I did have a friend that uh, worked in the prosecutor's office as a um, paralegal at one point, and she was explaining to me, um, I, and don't quote me on this being 100%, but from what I understood, is their pays are graded kind of like on a points when, when they're starting out as attorneys or prosecutors and stuff. Okay. Um, for instance, say you're starting out as a prosecutor. You have to have, you get so many points for a DUI conviction. You get so many points for a burglary conviction. You get so many points for a domestic violence position yeah. or conviction. It's kind of like a quota too. Okay. Well, the prosecutors and the defense attorneys are all friends. They they all go to school together. They all study together. They all, you know, mm-hmm. are in the same profession together. They all go to lunch together. And at lunchtime, they're discussing, well, hey, you need this many points or, you know, you need this many DUI convictions. Well, tell you what, I've got this guy I'm representing for a DUI. I'll get him to plead guilty. And this guy here that you've got for domestic violence, how about you drop the charges on him? And they trade back and forth to get yeah. what they want. Yeah. And like then, fucking Pokemon cards. Yeah. And then they come back in and tell you in the jail, you know, well, hey, you're lucky. Today, the prosecutor is willing to drop this charge if you plead guilty to this charge. And they're only going to recommend this much. Yeah. Okay. Well, <clears throat> you're sitting there looking at that you're in a rigged system. Okay. If I had the money to pay for an attorney, and, and I've seen before, people call and the attorneys tell them, oh, fuck, I could beat that in a heartbeat, you know? Uh, d- yeah, don't plead guilty to that. We'll get this beat if you've got the money to do it. But if you ain't got the money to do it, then the public pretender is telling you, well, lucky enough, we're going to offer you this deal. Is it, and you're really lucky to be getting this deal. Well, I don't want that deal. I'm not actually guilty of it. Well, if you don't take this deal, they're going to take you to court. Oh, you're going to have to take it to trial, okay? <laughs> And if you take it to trial, we can't win this. I, I don't. I have no defense for you I on this. <laughs> yeah. I suck at my job, and I will lose. Yeah, you're going to lose this. Guilty, and, and if you lose this, you know, then they're going to ask for a maximum sentence or, or an exceptional sentence and all that. But then you go to court, and the judge asks you when you're making this deal: Has anybody bribed you or made any kind of deals for this? Mm-hmm. What the fuck was the whole plea deal? <laughs> what was the, right in the words itself, plea agreement. Yeah. 
Okay, it's hilarious, man. The whole they, system. they would never they they just they don't see it that way. Like they come from such a different background. It's like the elite elite people playing chess with poor people or something to advance their own careers. Uh-huh. And like you said, people making bad decisions out of desperate circumstance. How often do rich people find themselves in desperate circumstances uh. that they even have to make those decisions? Well, like me. Okay, <clears throat> I have a family to support. Okay, I had a son I was trying to raise, and I had other kids that would be in my home from time to time. If it comes down to me selling drugs or them starving, I'm going to sell drugs. Yeah, that's not, it, that's not it, even it, a choice. I <laughs> generally tried not to take things from people. You know, when I did, I tried to have some morals about it. I wasn't, you come over and try and trade me your kids' toys for drugs. No, I'm not taking it. You come try and, you know, want to sell me your food stamps that you got to feed your kid. No, I'm not going to take it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I did try and have some morals about what I was doing, and I knew what I was doing was wrong. I, I was a drug addict myself, you know. <laughs> I I kind of get all that side of it. But on the same hand, if it come down to feeding my son, I'm going to feed my son yeah. one yeah, way or another. That's the and, career opportunity that's open to especially if you've been a felon already. Mm-hmm. And that's the career opportunity that's like, it's right there. I could do it. I could just go buy this drugs and be back in that business like this. Or I could spend time applying and getting denied and then being like, oh, what was your conviction for? All of this shit like that. Same as some of the people, you know, and and I I don't always agree with it, but I I do understand it, you know. If you're sitting over in your house with, you know, three fridges full of food and and my kid's sitting here starving, have no doubt I'm coming in and taking what you got, you know. (laughs) I I have a little bit more more morals than some people that I'm going to leave you something to feed yourself with. Mm Mm-hmm. Where, where someone else might take everything you got. But believe me, I'm not going to sit there and watch my son starve to death. I'm not going to sit there and starve to death. Yeah. Feels- and, and it's not. And most to- people feel that way. Even the law and order people. If you took it to them and were like, okay, well, what if your kid was starving? Yeah. Then some of the stuff starts dropping and they're like, oh, well, I, I mean, I might make some. <laughs> hey, oh, and they'll tell- I might move my goalposts And they'll even tell you well, they got happening. the money in their pocket. Like, you don't realize that like people in your community are starving, you know, and that's maybe why they're doing some of the stuff that you view as criminal. And while they've got the money in their pocket, they'll tell you, I've never done that or I would never do that. I'd never cross this yeah. line. But let them know. do a day without and see see, yeah. see what their actions would show then. Yeah. You don't know until you're there. Man. Anyway, the article continues. Even in the case of Derek Chauvin, who tortured and murdered George Floyd publicly and on camera for nine minutes and 29 seconds, prosecutor Jerry Blackwell opened by telling the jurors that they would be hearing about how it was not policy to use the force that Derek Chauvin applied and that the individual officer, not the police as a whole, is what was on trial. This obscures the racist violence inherent in the U.S. policing system. Quote, Black people who are unarmed or not attacking police are three and a half times more likely to be killed by police than white people. The Brookings Institute found. More than 75% of the time, chokeholds are applied on men of color. Every time we see this happen, it is only a fraction of the cases that we don't hear about because they weren't filmed. Initially, when an act of violence occurs, officers face little punishment of any kind, and only when people protest and riot in the streets over it are charges ever brought. Originally, the MPD, or the Minnesota Police Department, fired Chauvin. Then prosecutors charged him with third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. Only later, after much protest, did they add a charge of second-degree murder. But what would have happened if eyewitnesses had not recorded Floyd's death? Would Chauvin have been fired and charged with murder at all? For nine minutes and 29 seconds, Chauvin 
Chauvin continued to choke Floyd as several bystanders watched, many visibly recording the killing. Chauvin didn't try to hide what he was doing. As eyewitness Genevieve Hansen testified, Chauvin looked comfortable with his weight on Floyd's neck. Clearly, we cannot rely on the court system to bring justice to those brutalized and murdered by the police, as they are part of the very same system that is responsible for the many violent acts committed against poor people of color. We must build capacity outside of their systems of retribution and incarceration, as these are not what we want to base our justice in. We must organize the affected communities to challenge state power and the monopoly they hold on legitimate violence. By establishing ourselves as parallel sources of a legitimate power, we can control our own communities free from police. Who will protect and serve us? We must establish community defense initiatives, building the capacity of these grassroots organizations to be able to defend the working class against police violence, as well as providing mediation and conflict resolution within the community. A three-pronged approach is recommended in Rebellion Against Police Violence by the 1st of May Anarchist Alliance. Quote, First, we should be able to mobilize and respond quickly in our neighborhoods in order to prevent, defend, or retaliate against police terrorism. Second, we should be able to hold regular meetings in the community in order to address conflicts between neighbors so as to eliminate our dependence on police to resolve our disagreements. Should someone in our communities become a victim of police violence, we should have the ability to create enough of a disruption in the lives of the ruling class in order to force them to give us justice by meeting the demands of the victim and or their family. It is vital that these defense organizations be non-hierarchical and not just another gang wielding power over the people. It is to be made up of the people. Our capacity for self-defense needs to be generalized to the whole population. The power we have is collective. The state uses rifts between sectors of society to divide and conquer us. These divisions must be healed in order to empower us to defend everyone with care, respect, and justice. Responses to harm must be handled within the community and at the local level, with transformative and restorative approaches to justice. We do not need to replace the police. What we need is something entirely different that actually addresses the social inequities that lead to so-called crime and the actual sources of abuse and harm in our communities. These are communal and social methods of dealing with people who cause harm. It is not about punishment, but about stopping the behavior and healing the community as a whole. In this light, it can be seen that those most in need of being held to justice are the police themselves. Opposing Opposition As CrimeThink notes in their piece, Why Fuck the Police?, Criticism of opposition to police usually falls into one of five categories. First being the argument that police are fellow workers and should be our allies. But the police exist to enforce the will of the ruling class. They are managers, not workers. They manage the population for the ruling class. They routinely help squash dissent and attempts at revolution and striking. They cannot be our allies until they leave their positions. By publicly deriding the police as an institution, we can insist that police get real jobs and then join us on the barricades. But as long as they follow the orders of the day, they can never be our allies. Today's police officers, at least in North America, know exactly what they're getting into when they join the force. People in uniform don't just get cats out of trees in this country. Yes, most take the job because of what they feel to be economic necessity, but needing a paycheck is no excuse for obeying orders to evict families, harass young men of color, or pepper spray demonstrators. Those whose consciousness can be bought are everyone else's enemies, not potential allies. The second argument goes that because the police have such overwhelming force and resources at their disposal, they can certainly win in any fight, so we shouldn't fight them, since it's a losing battle and not worth our time. This is a strategic calculation made by those who have never dealt with the police in a confrontation and discover just how stupid they really are. The police are heavily limited and constrained in what they can get away 
with, needing to balance public perception with the need to deploy overwhelming force. This is why a small crowd of protesters can hold off a larger, well-organized force of police. These contests are not decided on the lines of a military engagement. There are complex social pressures at play that allow the clever anarchist to outsmart and outmaneuver the police. These displays of victory are important, no matter how small, as they demonstrate the willingness of people to rebel against the system, and that is always inspiring to others. They let anarchists show that reality is negotiable, and that the police's grip on society is not as stable as it may appear. The third category of argument is that the police are a mere distraction from the real enemy, the state. But as we discussed already, without the police to carry out their orders, politicians would be little more than whiny brats debating alone in a room somewhere about how other people should live their lives. The police are not the end of the fight, but to ignore them is to risk losing entirely, as they are the fundamental repressive arm of the state, the one most likely to be used against us in our struggle for liberation. The fourth line of argument is that we actually need police. Yikes! According to this logic, even if we can think about a future scenario in which we have no need for police, we still need them today, because people aren't ready to live peacefully together without armed mediators. But the social imbalances maintained by the police are far from peace. It is not important that the abolition of police be carried out in a snap of a finger tomorrow. The point is that we need to make strides towards a concrete goal and not be abstract in what we are fighting for. If you think some police officers are good individuals, then fine. But they are still police officers, upholding the violence of the entire state apparatus and everything that it entails. Naivete is only so much of an excuse for perpetuating this sort of cruelty on people. The idea is not that conflict and harm will disappear with police, but that we need better methods of dealing with conflict and harm than police. The final argument is from the pacifist camp, whose opposition to all forms of violence leads them to counter that it is inherently wrong to use violence in services of liberation. To use it would make us just as bad as them, for example. But if the point is to make the world a better place, then it will necessitate violence in certain situations, such as the opposition to Nazi Germany. I've seen this argument brought up a lot. In my experience, it is often used performatively by centrists and the apolitical as a way of avoiding a deeper discussion of the politics of violence and feign a position of neutrality. They would prefer the false peace that is sustained by coercion via the threat of state violence. It is impossible for us to remain neutral in the face of oppression. To do so is to provide tacit support for the actions of oppressors. So long as we are willing to look the other way, we will continue to be complicit in their abuses, and our hands will be stained with the blood of their victims. The article concludes, It can be hard to talk about the need for police abolition in a small rural town like Aberdeen, Washington. We seem far removed from the scenes of militarized riot police beating protesters in the large cities nearby. But we separate ourselves to our own detriment, as their struggle is the same as ours. In the event of a localized uprising, police come from the surrounding areas to assist the smaller local departments in their riot control efforts. This means we are not disconnected from the possibility of seeing riot police here in Aberdeen, if the need arose. Yeah, Grace Harbor already has a long history, in my experience, of departments going outside jurisdiction to help each other out, even when they won't do that for the population. I can think of more than one occasion, but one in particular, where it was a... Car stereo was stolen out of a car. A friend of mine was in Olympia. His car was broken into. Stereo stolen. Turns out it was, and he called the police up there. They come come down, told him it really wasn't worth looking at the car. They usually never catch these type of stuff. But it was just a random act. Didn't take fingerprints off his car like that. Happened to be someone from Aberdeen that stole the car stereo out of his car. He seen it in their car. He called the police down here, and he said, this person has my stereo in their car that was stolen. No wars has stolen that. When it was parked in the Olympia Mall parking, well, that's not our jurisdiction. You need to call Olympia. They call Olympia. 
I called the police and reported my stereo stole up here. Oh, well, I thought we told you. We, we really, not much point in investigating. We're not going to catch those people. You don't have to. I know who took it. I found my stereo is in this person's car. Oh, well, that's not in our jurisdiction. Nothing we can do about it. No, but basically, they're, it's at their discretion, you know, what's their jurisdiction or not. Just like the story down here with Lehman, okay? Um, or like Egg Night that they used to have down here all the time. Um, for years, it was a tradition. The first homecoming game that Aberdeen played against Hoquim, there was a big town-to-town egg fight. It was hilarious as shit. It was also quite a mess. But That's it got to a point where they wouldn't sell you eggs without ID for a couple of weeks prior to it. Any kid going to the store wasn't allowed to get eggs. Even with a note from your mom, you didn't buy eggs. You know, the police seen you walking down the street with eggs. They would be stopping to talk to you. You know, um, you need a license and, and register your eggs. <laughs> they 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 would have Aberdeen patrolling Hoquiam Streets, Hoquiam patrolling Aberdeen Streets, Graves Harbor County patrolling them all. You know, in different jurisdictions, you'd see or different cities, you'd see the different officers and stuff. Um, or the Fog Festival they used to have in Ocean Shores. It's no longer. A sponsored event by the city of Ocean Shores, but it used to be a festival every year that they had. It was a bunch of parties. You would see the police, um, the parties on the beach were so intense and so many people, bikers would be down there and stuff, that the police that had to patrol that area drove straight by. They didn't stop when they seen underage kids drinking or people smoking pot that back then was highly illegal or anything. They drove, their, their assignment was to drive down the beach and patrol it. So they went from one end to the other in so many minutes without a stop in between or looking the other direction. You know, um, they really didn't enforce that. But then, they would be leaving Ocean Shore, someone from out clam digging or whatever, and on the beach on the way ho- or on the highway on the way home, hitting Hokum or Aberdeen, being pulled over by Ocean Shore's police officers, wanting to know what they were doing. Were they at the parties? Were they drinking and driving? Mm-hmm. And all those actions were committed with uh, like multiple jurisdictions working together? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They actually call it mutual aid. That's fucking disgusting. Hi. Huh. Aren't you guys called mutual aid? <laughs> I just had to ask. It's a, <laughs> it's a tactic we like to call co-optation, and it's fucking horrible. Have you had any other experiences of uh, po- police from other jurisdictions working in tandem like that? Um, one time, Cosmopolis kept harassing my kids. It wasn't because my kids did anything wrong. It was because the officer that particularly worked there remembered me from when I was younger and not always on my best behavior. So he would harass my kids, threatening to give them tickets for or take their bicycles or skateboards away for riding them without helmets. Um, you know, anytime he seen the boys walking around Cosmopolis or up or down the streets, he had to stop and, you know, see what they were doing or come by my house with every little problem that happened in Cosmopolis were my kids involved. Um and I'd gotten fed up with it one night. So one night I called a couple younger guys I know to come over to the house and I gave them each a box of high-end fireworks. And I sent one to one end of Cosmopolis and one to the other end of Cosmopolis. And I would call one up on the cell phone and tell them, hey, start lighting your fireworks. And pretty soon you would see the officer driving down that end of Cosmopolis looking to see where the fireworks were coming from. <laughs> Rather he seen himself or someone called and complained about it, he would be down there. And about the time he did, I'd call that person up and tell them, stop lighting them. And I'd call the person at the other end of Cosy and tell them, start lighting the fireworks. <laughs> and he would start lighting off fireworks till you seen the officers go down to the other end of Cosy and start patrolling the street down in there up and down looking for wherever the fireworks were coming from. <laughs> I'm assuming by this time it's he's getting requested by other officers to help rather than just someone calling in saying they seen fireworks. Yeah. 
Um, and then as soon as they're down there, I would call him and tell him stop lighting the fireworks and call the next person down the other end and start lighting them again. And I sent them back and forth for a few hours doing this. And by the end of it, there was the Aberdeen Police Department. Well, the Cosmopolis Police Department, of course, the Aberdeen Police Department, Hoquin Police Department, uh, county. And I do believe there was a state patrol officer that were driving in unison doing a grid back and forth through Kazi. When I called the boys and told them, all right, that's enough for night. Come in. They had just walked in my back door, and this officer, Layman, comes up to my front door. Where are your boys at? I said, they're in the back room playing video games. Have they been there all night? I said, yes, they have. They, they did their chores, and they're staying in for the night playing video games. I said, does this have anything to do with the fireworks show tonight? He says, well, how do you know about it? I said, well... <laughs> I live here along the main drag in Kazi. You can't help but see either end of Kazi. It is a very small town. You know? So I'm assuming that's what you're here about since you're here over every other little thing that happens in Kazi. And he says, well, you're sure your boys have been in all night? I said, yes, they have. I've been here all night long. I've not been more than a time about 10 minutes at most that I haven't been back there, or heard one of their voices or seen one of them. And he says, okay, then I know for sure who it is. And he names off the two individuals who, who I actually had done it. <laughs> and I, and it was just by coincidence. They walked in the back door right as he was stopping. But I said, oh, no, they're back there, too. They've been back there playing games with the boys all night. Perfect. So he got frustrated and left. I think he knew better. But That's it, cool that one person can kind of tie up <clears throat> that many officers at once. Another time, too, over there was. Um, I hope he hears this. I hope that officer hears this. <laughs> and there was another... Fuck you, Layman. <laughs> and there, yeah, Heath and he's Layman, like, I knew it! <laughs> Heath Layman definitely had his uh, <laughs> times of, uh, I guess, coming to him. Uh, there was a good example was one night, a uh, rather large boom happened in Kazi. And next thing I know, he's out front of my house. And he says, D did you hear anything around here? I said, sound like a firework. <laughs> and he left and he proceeded to call out Kazi's resources, their fire department and all this other stuff. Um, and they were over at the NORCAT across the street. And after a while, um, he comes over and he tells me that he could arrest me for wasting public resources. I said, wasting what public resources? I told you it sounded like a firework. He said, well, no, you blew something up over there. And we thought the tanks at NORCAT exploded. And, you know, <laughs> or, I had to call out the fire department and all this other stuff. I said, why did you have to call them out? I told you it sounded like a firework. <laughs> he says, well, you're over here lighting stuff. I didn't light nothing. I just told you it sounded like a firework. I would have thought firework. <laughs> Yeah, I would not want to have the person who has a grudge against me be a cop. No, it's they look for every reason they can. Um, any of my friends that come over to my house would get harassed and pulled over. My brother's um, girlfriend or wife now, I, I think, um, her husband or not, <laughs> her dad was lost overseas or lost out at sea going overboard on a boat. It was He had been missing for like a month or two at sea, and he was listed as a missing person. Well, of course, his daughter inherited his Jeep, and Layman wanted an excuse to come over and see who was at my house. And the Jeep was, you know, registered to her dad who was listed as a missing person that everybody knew was lost overboard on a boat and stuff. <laughs> but he had to come up, bring the subject up. We got Amanda all in tears because she's still fresh or losing her dad. But yeah. this month or so later, they knew what happened. He wanted to know who was in my house and what they were doing there. Jesus, an asshole. And that's the type of stuff they do once they get to know you. Um, 
never once did I get pulled over in Kazi that I got told what it was I did. I got a driving on suspended third. But what did I do for them to pull me over to find out that I didn't have a license? It wasn't nothing I did. I drove fine. I followed the speed limit. I I was simply going to work and home from work or to the grocery store, necessity things. Yeah. It was that they seen me driving. And well, yeah, they know like I said, don't they have can a pull you over for anything. There's, yeah. there's always, they follow you for 50 yards. There's something, I'm sure. Well, that and there's times that they had seen me that they, for whatever reason, didn't have a problem with me driving. They let me drive on. And then there's other times that they seen me. It was just a matter they knew it was me. It was all it took. They pulled me over, wanted to search my car, wanted to, you know, do this, that, or the other. Yeah, that sucks. Or when my friends would get pulled over, I they'd call me, hey, I just got pulled over down here. I would have someone go from my house with a license down to their car so it wouldn't get impounded. And they actually got mad at me for that. How come every time some, we pull over one of your friends in Kazi, you show up? Because you're looking for any reason you can to cause him money and to take his car from him and make life harder on him. You know, I'm simply making sure someone is here with a license that can legally drive the car, put it in a safe place so he's not losing his car. Yeah. You know, you're already taking his freedom. Why should he lose more? Well, that's mutual. And and they would <laughs> that's get praxis. They would get upset about it, and they would look for more reasons to harass me or come over to my house or anything else. There's so much stuff that you could lose that even if you do end up, you know, out of jail at some point, like you could easily be on on the street by the decisions of these people. Is there any other ways laymen is try to fuck with you? Um, taking my kids, having CPS. I was arrested one night. My uh, Stepson, on Mother's Day, broke into my room. He stole some marijuana. Um, it was a kid. I didn't think he should have had the marijuana. But it was also Mother's Day, and it started off a really crappy day for my wife. So I'm just trying to get her out to help ease her mind. Well, my stepson, I get it, to get out of trouble, went and told the police that I had um, a meth lab upstairs. He knew I had three pot plants. It was legal. I had the proper medical cards for it and everything. But he goes and lets Layman come into my house. Cuts off not one, but two locks to get through to my grow rooms because I didn't want it around my children or them having access to it. I used it for my own reasons. But he cuts these two locks off and he can't find absolutely nothing. Searches the rest of my house, finds absolutely nothing. Illegal anyway. But my wife had cleaned her pipe out the night before and the resin from her marijuana pipe was sitting on a piece of tinfoil next to our bed on her nightstand, which my room I usually kept locked. My kids weren't allowed in. I was honest with them. They knew I smoked pot, but they also knew until they were of a certain age and, you know, responsible, it wasn't going to happen around them. Yeah. He took that piece of resin on the tinfoil and arrested me for suspicion of heroin sales. I told him, take your test out of the back of your car. There's a little test you got. I know all officers carry it that tell you what drug it is, whether it's heroin, cocaine, methamphetamines, whatever. Test it. And you're going to see that's marijuana and you're an idiot. (laughs) He conveniently does not have that test that night. He tells me, I don't have one. I'm all out. I'm taking you to county and county will hold you there until we get the results back from the lab. The next morning, Grace Harbor County Sheriff's Office released me. As soon as they seen what the sample was, they knew it wasn't heroin. They knew it. Yeah. And it's pretty obvious if you've used drugs or whatnot, a difference between heroin and marijuana resin. <laughs> okay. But they released me the next morning and actually apologized for the situation. I, I, I was kind of surprised by that. Oh, I get home to be told that Layman called CPS. CPS took my children and I couldn't have them. Wow. Um, at which time I went to where my children were, told them to get their asses in the car and come home and told CPS and 
the police department do whatever the fuck they want. They weren't taking my kids. I, I refused to let yeah. that happen. During the 24 hours, or not even the 24 hours, the few hours I'd spent in the county jail, Lyman proceeded to go around Cosby, telling everyone how I sold heroin to kids and I was an endangerment to the community and the people around me, Jeez. including the person who I rented my business, uh, or my business was run through the building that I was renting from. Yeah. I got told that morning when I got out of jail and went to go to work that I no longer had the building my business was in that I provided for for my family with. And had a really lucrative business at the time. And when I asked why, he said, because of this. You know, Officer Lehman told him this. And, you know, he asked me. And I said, you know, I'll be honest with you. I'd gotten in trouble when I was younger. I'd messed with other drugs when I was younger. But I was clean. I was out of trouble. And I was simply trying to provide for my family and run an honest business. And I told the guy, you know, he ought to know that. He sees me every day. deals with me on a regular basis every day. Yeah. Not only do I pay him my rent for the building, I told him a little extra because I know it's a burden, the electricity that it runs. And he was paying that bill. But still, I'm told, I basically have till the end of the month to move all my stuff out of my shop. It's my own fault that I didn't have as much money saved up that I could have gone and gotten another shop or whatnot. Yeah. You know, still, I, I, that's I, your livelihood. Yeah, I, I didn't do the best financially as far as figuring out how to spend it. I, I was really good at working and making it to take care of my family. And in that one swoop, everything was lost. I lost my house. I lost most of my belongings. And me and my family ended up living in tents out at Wainuchi Wildwood throughout the summer. Till towards the end of summer when I'd gotten back into a house and started yeah. to get back on my feet again. So this guy's really got it in for um, I mean, that's a lot more that, than just like fucking with someone. That's like ruining their life. Yeah, and, and that's <clears throat> not just this cop. It's a number of cops are that way. I've run through that experience several times throughout life with local law enforcement and stuff. There's been a few that, you know, seen, like I said, I was out for almost 18 years. So I stayed out of trouble. No. Is that because they know you or they just perceive you as... Some personally know me on, on a personal basis and, and um, different stuff. I admit, maybe some of it I brought on myself. I fight with some of them when I was younger. They have a grudge against me. But there's a point people grow up and, and to have that authority over someone and be able to do that or mess with their life like that. There's a difference that you twisted your ankle chasing me through the brush yeah. 25, 30 years ago to where my family has no home over their head <laughs> or no food yeah. on the table anymore. That's you know. Who, it's quite the escalation, yeah. to say the least. And yeah, they wonder like, why people pick up guns and go into a police department and start shooting them all. <laughs> no, I don't. I, I can't say that that hasn't been a thought once or twice in my own mind. I just personally wouldn't, or not at this point, wouldn't be doing that. But who knows <laughs> yeah. how far they'll push people. Yeah. No, they never stop. Certain people have a privilege that they don't have to deal with this kind of stuff. And so they think that the police are good because they never have to deal with the police. And that's generally what I found is that most people who think, oh, the police are good or whatever, have not dealt with the police. Mm. And most people who have dealt with the police in any capacity are critical of the police, to say the least. And, and not even said <clears throat> being, you know, victimizer or victim. You know, people that have had to call the police to be defended by them have complaints that they don't do their job. They don't protect them. Yeah. Um, they treat the person... A guy gets assaulted or robbed or something. Police treat the victim like, you know, he did something to bring this about, you know. And he's actually the perpetrator of it, but because he did that. And then the same person that fucking committed the crime or whatnot has the same opinion. The cop went way too far out of his way trying to show that I did something wrong. Yeah. It's an opinion shared by people who have only gotten the carrot. They've never had to face the stick. Yeah. We have a quote here from the article that kind of falls in line with that sentiment. It's... From Michael Parenti, 
Quote, you will have no sensation of a leash around your neck if you sit by the peg. It is only when you stray that you feel the restraining tug. The article continues. When small town cops don't need to use their riot control measures very often, the idea develops that they are somehow a different sort of police than those big city cops. But the brutality and logic of their job is the same. Quote unquote good cops support the very same system that oppresses us here locally as police do wherever they are. Good cops are the reason there are empty houses rotting while people sleep under bridges. Good cops are the reason that poor people cannot take the food they need to survive from the shelves of Walmart. Good cops keep the criminalization of poverty the status quo. It can seem like we have a kinder, gentler police force here in Aberdeen, but this false peace is a result of their absolute domination. Only when they are resisted will they ever show their true colors. It doesn't matter if the police officer in question is a nice person or genuinely tries to use their position to help those in need. The point is that the police are the very reason why so much need exists. It is their enforcement of so many arbitrary laws protecting the rich from the poor that results in our poverty in the first place. We are not concerned with the individual's character. We need to get rid of the social position of police. This doesn't mean eliminating the individuals who work as police. This is not an identity, it is an occupation. We can, in fact, eliminate all police without harming a single individual, since it is just a job, and when no one holds that job, then the institution of police will be abolished. We are not upset that some officers may choose to use their incredible authority to not abuse people. We are upset that anyone should have the ability to make such a choice. We assert that no one is fit to rule. From Crime Think. To make this clear, yes, cops are people too and deserve the same respect to all living things. The point is not that they deserve to suffer, or that we have to bring them to justice. That's Christian morality again, dealing in currencies of superstition and resentment. The point is that, in purely pragmatic terms, in order that others not have to suffer, it may be necessary to interrupt, by militant and confrontational means, the injustices perpetuated by police officers. We must not be trying to put the police up against the wall or exact our revenge upon them. That is not the goal. Our goal is to better all life, including theirs, as we hold that it would be far better for the officers in question to not be police officers anymore. The term police can refer to an individual officer, but it can also refer to the occupation as an overall structure. Again from CrimeThink. Therefore, while it may even sometimes be necessary to set police on fire, this should not be done out of a spirit of vengeful self-righteousness, but from a place of careful thought and compassion. If not for the police themselves, then for all those who would otherwise suffer at their hands. We must continue to call the police out and oppose them ferociously. The rhetoric employed here will do little to provoke assault, but it will publicize the concept of disapproving of the police in Aberdeen. This may do more for the lives of these officers and their families than anything else. For not only do police officers have a disproportionately high rate of domestic violence and child abuse, they also get killed, commit suicide, and become addicts with disproportionate frequency. So by this measure, anything that delegitimizes the police and their absolute authority, demoralizes them, and encourages them to quit is in their best interest, as well as the interest of their loved ones and society at large. Google 40% of cops. So, the problem with good cops is that there aren't any. That's missing the point entirely. The problem isn't individual, it's structural, it's systemic. Who is on the force hardly matters, when the overall structure of policing is what it is. Until we abolish the structure of policing, the occupation of police, nothing we do to the system will ever make it less oppressive or brutal. Fuck the police. You know, it's interesting what you said earlier, Doug, about your, about your fantasies in a police station, because there's an addendum here at the bottom of the article. 
In contradiction of this entire article, the only good cop was Chris Dorner. <laughs> it is time for a quick musical break, but when we come back, we'll be examining the article we've just discussed. And now, here is So You Want to Be a Cop by Leftover Crack. I don't care if we fill the jails, arrest anyone, any rank. We will make them see their injustice, and it will hurt, as all fighting hurts. But we cannot lose. We cannot. They may torture my body, break my bones, even kill me. Then, they will have my dead body.
Welcome back to Molotov Now. It's time for us to analyze the article we've just examined and bring our guests back to talk a bit about the history of policing for a more holistic view of abolition. So, Doug, what do you know about the history of policing? Not a lot. Well, good. We can go over with... Well, good. We can go over it with you then. Well, from quelling slave revolts to busting up general strikes, the roots of policing are set in violence as a tool for social control. To help us wade through this bloody history, I'll be reading from Alex Vitale's The End of Policing to guide us. We'll be reading from Chapter 2 here. The London Metropolitan Police is often held up as the original police force. Created in 1829 by Sir Robert Peel, from whom the Bobbies get their name, this new force was more effective than the informal and unprofessional watch or the excessively violent and often hated militia and army. But this noble endeavor had at its core not fighting crime, but managing disorder and protecting the propertied classes from the rabble. Peel developed his ideas while managing the British colonial occupation of Ireland and seeking new forms of social control that would allow for continued political and economic domination in the face of growing insurrections, riots, and political uprisings. For years, such outrages had been managed by the local militia and, if necessary, the British army. However, colonial expansion and Napoleonic wars dramatically reduced the availability of these forces just as resistance to British occupation increased. Furthermore, armed troops had limited tools for dealing with riots and other forms of mass disorder. Too often they were called upon to open fire on crowds, creating martyrs and further inflaming Irish resistance. Peel was forced to develop a lower-cost and more legitimate form of policing, a quote-unquote peace preservation force, made up of professional police who attempted to manage crowds by embedding themselves more fully in rebellious localities than identifying and neutralizing troublemakers and ringleaders through threats and arrests. This led eventually to the creation of the Royal Irish Constabulary, which for about a century was the main rural police force in Ireland. It played a central role in maintaining British rule and an oppressive agricultural system dominated by British loyalists a system that produced widespread poverty, famine, and displacement. The signal event that showed the need for a professional police force was the Peterloo Massacre of 1819. In the face of widespread poverty, combined with the displacement of skilled work by industrialization, movements emerged across the country to call for political reforms. In August of 1819, tens of thousands of people gathered in central Manchester, only to have the rally declared illegal. A cavalry charge with sabres killed a dozen protesters and injured several hundred more. In response, the British state developed a series of vagrancy laws designed to force the people into, quote, productive work. What was needed was a force that could both maintain political control and help produce a new economic order of industrial capitalism. The threat of homelessness will always be used to bully the working class into doing what our masters bid us. Homelessness sets the floor for everyone's wages. Fear of homelessness keeps poor workers in line. The middle class then gets told that the poor workers are unskilled, and so they don't deserve to have livable wages, while the rich keep profit created by both of them. Yeah, well, they have, like, this pool of could-be workers in the homeless that they could draw from, so it's like a threat to any employed person. They use homeless people and unemployed people as a threat to any person with a job, as like, oh, this person could come take your job and would work for half the price, gladly. And so it suppresses wages as well. We continue. What was needed was a force that could both maintain political control and help produce a new economic order of industrial capitalism. As Home Secretary, Peel created the London Metropolitan Police to do this. The main functions of the new police, despite their claims of political neutrality, 
were to protect property, quell riots, put down strikes, and other industrial actions, and produce a disciplined industrial workforce. That's the quiet part out loud. There it is. This system was expanded throughout England, which was awash in movements against industrialization. The Luddites resisted exploitation through workplace sabotage. Jacobins, inspired by the French Revolution, were a constant source of concern. The most threatening, however, were the Chartists, who called for fundamental democratic reforms on behalf of impoverished English workers. Local, non-professional constables and militias were unable to deal with these movements effectively or enforce the new vagrancy laws. At first, they requested the services of the new London police, who had proven quite capable of putting down disturbances and strikes with minimal force. That force, however, always has the patina of central government intervention, which often further inflamed movements. So eventually, towns created their own full-time professional police departments, based on the London model. The London model was imported into Boston in 1838 and spread throughout northern cities over the next few decades. That model had to adapt to the United States, where massive immigration and rapid industrialization created an even more socially and politically chaotic environment. Boston's economic and political leaders needed a new police force to manage riots and the widespread social disorder associated with the working classes. In 1837, the Broad Street riots involved a mob of 15,000 attacking Irish immigrants. This was quelled only after a regiment of militia, including 800 cavalry, was called onto the streets. Following this, Mayor Samuel Elliott moved to create a professional civilian police force. New York leapfrogged over Boston, creating an even larger and more formal police force in 1844. New York was exploding with new immigrants who were being chewed up by rapid and often cruel industrialization producing social upheaval and immiseration that was expressed as crime, racial and ethnic strife, and labor unrest. I really like that quote, producing social upheaval and immiseration that was expressed as crime. Because that's what most crime is, is the expression of poverty and social inequities. We're all products of our environment. White and black dock workers went on strike and undertook destructive sabotage actions in 1802, 1825, and 1828. There were larger waves of strikes by skilled workers being displaced by mass production in 1809, 1822, and 1829. These culminated in the formation of the Working Men's Party in 1829, which demanded a 10-hour day and led to the founding of the General Trade Union in 1833. Rioting that was less obviously political was widespread during this period, sometimes occurring monthly. We should go back to monthly riots. Monthly riots gets the Molotov now seal of approval. Oh, next they have a Christmas riot. During the 1828 Christmas riot, how jolly. Please, Santa. All I want for Christmas. <laughs> Santa in a balaclava. During the 1828 Christmas riot, 4,000 workers marched on the wealthy districts, beating up blacks and looting stores along the way. All right. They, they had half the idea. Guys... Some notes. Um, <laughs> let's not repeat this in our Christmas riot. The Night Watch assembled to block them, but gave way to the horror of the city's elite who watched the events unfold from their mansions and at a party at the city hotel. In response, newspapers began calling for a major expansion and professionalization of the watch, which ended with the formation of the police. So the Night Watch let this mob go through, and because of that, they got more money. Does that sound familiar? The only answer to the failures of police is more money, of course. More money, more police. That's the, that's the solution to the problem. 
you so, this this thing isn't working throw money at it back to the book Wealthy Protestant nativists feared and resented the new immigrants, who were often Catholic, uneducated, disorderly, politically militant, and prone to voting Democrat. They attempted to discipline and control this population by restricting drinking, gambling, and prostitution, as well as much more mundane behaviors, like how women wore their hair, the lengths of bathing suits, and public kissing. The formation of the Chicago police was directly tied to such efforts. Law and Order Party Mayor Levi Boone established the first, quote, special police force following his election in 1855 with the express intent of enforcing a variety of nativist morality laws, including restrictions on drinking. In response to the arrest of several dozen saloon keepers, a group comprised mostly of German workers attempted to free them, leading to the Lager Beer Riots. According to historian Sam Mitrani, Local elites responded by holding a, quote, law and order meeting to demand an even larger and more professional police force. The next week, the city council responded by creating the Chicago's first official police force. Again, we have the kind of failures of police leading to the increased funding of police. It's capitalism, baby. The mantra is more. It was the creation of police that made widespread enforcement of vice laws and even the criminal code possible for the first time. These morality laws both gave the state greater power to intervene in the social lives of new immigrants and opened the door to widespread corruption. So that's been there from the very beginning. Corruption. Vice corruption. Almost ingrained into the system, it would seem. Yeah. Vice corruption was endemic in police departments across the country. While station house basements often housed the homeless and officers managed a large population of orphaned youth, as Eric Monconen points out, these efforts were primarily designed to surveil and control this population rather than provide meaningful assistance. That's what I'm talk that's what we're talking about. It's like badge cameras. It's like the help they give is harmful. It's like we were saying earlier. Our help is that we hit you twice because you didn't learn the first time. And like, yes, we're in your community and we're saying that we're helping, but the reason we're here is to watch you. That's essentially it. Make sure that these workers don't get out of line. The book continues. America's early urban police were both corrupt and incompetent. That's so surprising. Americans. <laughs> I just like that sentence. Officers were usually chosen based on political connections and bribery. There were no civil service exams or even formal training in most places. They were also used as tools of political parties to suppress opposition voting and spy on and suppress workers' organizations, meetings, and strikes. Doesn't sound like much has changed. No, nope. I think America's current urban police are both corrupt and incompetent. It goes on. If a local businessman had close ties to a local politician... He needed only to go to the station, and a squad of police would be sent to threaten, beat, and arrest workers as needed. Payments from gamblers, and later, bootleggers, were a major source of income for officers, with payments increasing up the chain of command. The system of being, quote, on the take, remained standard procedure in many major departments until the 1970s, when resistance emerged in the form of whistleblowers like Frank Serpico. Corruption remains an issue, especially in the relation to drugs and sex work, but tends to be more isolated, less systemic, and subject to some internal disciplinary controls, as liberal reformers have worked to shore up police legitimacy. Because that's the job of liberal reformers, is to shore up police legitimacy, not to 
improve the police or reduce harm. It's the job of liberals in general. It's a ratchet effect. They block movement from going b- back to the left while the while the conservatives keep cranking the ratchet right. Yeah. The primary jobs of early detectives were to spy on political radicals and other troublemakers and to replace private thief catchers who recovered stolen goods for a reward. Again, the, just the quiet part out loud. <laughs> yeah, things were much more open and brazen back then. They've learned to use a different language, I suppose, but the effect is the same. Interestingly, very few thieves ended up getting caught by the new police. In many instances, they worked closely with thieves and pickpockets, taking a cut of their earnings and acting as fences by exchanging stolen merchandise for reward, rather than having to sell the goods on the black market at a heavy discount. That's just like cops that seize drug money and then buy stuff for their department with it. Yeah. There's a lot of money going missing in those evidence departments. The extent of police corruption was so great that the business leaders, journalists, and religious leaders banded together to expose corruption and inefficiency and demand that police both become more professional and more effectively crack down on crime, vice, and radical politics. So even the establishment is pushing back. It's so corrupt. It's like, we created this force. It's gone terribly. Let's continue. <laughs> I've created a monster. Like why? Send it into town. And, and you can see in the last part of the sentence why they're unwilling to just reverse course. It's because they still want to crack down on crime, vice, and radical politics. Read Poverty. In response to this and similar efforts in the late 19th and early 20th century, policing was professionalized through the use of civil service exams and centralized hiring processes, trainings, and new technology. Overt corruption and brutality were reined in, and management sciences were introduced. Reformers like August Vollmer developed police science courses and textbooks, utilized new transportation and communication technologies, and introduced fingerprinting and police labs. As we will see later, many of the ideas emerged from his experiences as part of the U.S. occupation force in the Philippines. In some cases, early police forces were created specifically for the purposes of suppressing workers' movements. Pennsylvania was home to some of the most militant unionism of the late 19th, early 20th century. Local police were too few in number and were sometimes sympathetic to the workers, so mine and factory owners turned to the state to provide them with armed forces to control strikes and intimidate organizers. The state's initial response was to authorize a completely privatized police force called the, cold, called the Coal and Iron Police. Local employers had only to pay a commission fee of $1 per person to deputize anyone of their choosing as an official officer of the law. These forces worked directly for the employer, often under the supervision of Pinkertons and other private security forces, and were typically used as strike breakers and were often implicated as agent provocateurs fomenting violence as a way of breaking up workers' movements and justifying their continued paychecks. The Coal and Iron Police committed numerous atrocities, including the Latimer Massacre of 1897, in which they killed 19 unarmed miners and wounded 32 others. The final straw was the anthracite coal strike of 1902, a pitched battle that lasted five months and created national coal shortages. In the aftermath, political leaders and employers decided that a new system of labor management paid for out of public coffers would be cheaper for them and have greater public legitimacy and effectiveness. The result was the creation of the Pennsylvania State Police in 1905, the first state police force in the country. 
It was modeled after the Philippine Constabulary, used to maintain the U.S. occupation there, which became a testing ground for new police techniques and technologies. The local population resented U.S. occupation and developed anti-colonial organizations and struggles. The National Police Force attempted to develop close ties to local communities to allow it to monitor subversive activities. Again, you have them attempting to develop close ties to a local community, but the reason is just to monitor people and control the population. The United States also moved quickly to erect telephone and telegraph wires to allow quick communication of emerging intelligence. When demonstrations emerged, the police, through a huge network of informants, could anticipate them and place spies and agent provocateurs among them to sow dissent and allow leaders and other agitators to be quickly arrested and neutralized. In Pennsylvania, this new paramilitary force represented an important shift of power away from local communities. This shift unambiguously favored the interests of large employers, who had significantly more influence over state-level politicians. While putatively under civilian political control, the reality was the state police remained a major force in putting down strikes, though often with less violence and greater legal and political authority. The consequences, however, were largely the same, as they participated in strike-breaking and the killing of minors, such as Westmoreland County Coal Strike of 1910 and 1911. These practices then fed back into domestic American policing. The most important police leader of the 20th century, August Vollmer, after serving in the Philippines, became chief of police in Berkeley, California, and wrote the most influential textbook of modern policing. Vollmer went on to pioneer the use of radio patrol cars, fingerprinting, and other techniques now considered standard practice. Fucking asshole. Fuck you, Vollmer. The U.S. went on to set up additional colonial police forces in Central America and the Caribbean in the early 20th century. Jeremy Kuzmarov documents U.S. involvement in creating repressive police forces in Haiti, the Dominican Republic, and Nicaragua. These forces were designed to be part of a progressive era program of modernization and nation building, but were quickly turned into forces of brutal repression in the service of U.S.-backed regimes. These U.S.-trained security forces went on to commit horrific human rights abuses, including torture, extortion, kidnapping, and mass murder. The U.S. continued to set up police forces as part of its foreign policy objectives throughout the post-war period. Japan, South Korea, and South Vietnam all had U.S.-created police forces, whose primary purposes were intelligence and counterinsurgency. Post-war police reformer O.W. Wilson, a colonel in the military police during World War II, was involved in the denazification of Germany following the war. Afterward, afterwards, he went on to teach police science at Berkeley and was appointed commissioner of police in Chicago in 1960 and influenced a generation of police executives with his idea of preventative policing. I wonder how much they taught the Germans versus how much the Germans taught them. Hard to say. Yeah, he might have picked a thing up or two over in Germany. I mean, if Operation Paperclip's to say anything. We continue. The U.S. also had its own domestic version of colonial policing, the Texas Rangers. Initially a loose band of irregulars, the Rangers were first hired to protect the interests of newly arriving white colonists, first under the Mexican government, later under an independent republic of Texas, and finally as part of the state of Texas. Their main work was to hunt down native populations accused of attacking white settlers, as well as of investigating crimes like cattle rustling. The rangers also frequently acted as vigilantes on behalf of whites in disputes with the Spanish and Mexican populations. 
For more than a century, they were a major force for white colonial expansion, pushing out Mexicans through violence, intimidation, and political interference. In some cases, whites would raid cattle from Mexican ranches, and then, when Mexican vaqueros tried to take them back, call in the rangers to retrieve their stolen property. Mexicans and Native Americans who resisted ranger authority could be killed, beaten, arrested, or intimidated. Mike Cox describes this as nothing short of an extermination campaign in which almost the entire indigenous population was killed or driven out of the territory. In the 60s and 70s, local and state elites used the rangers to suppress the political and economic rights of Mexican Americans and played a central role in subverting farm worker movements by shutting down meetings, intimidating supporters, and arresting and brutalizing picketers and union leaders. They were also frequently called in to intimidate Mexican-Americans out of voting in local elections. Most Latinos were subjected to a kind of Juan Crow, in which they were denied the right to vote, barred from private and public accommodations such as hotels, restaurants, bus station waiting rooms, public pools, and bathrooms. The first direct assault on this system occurred in 1963 in the small farming town of Crystal City, in which Tejanos made up a majority of the population but had no political representation. The white political establishment enforced segregation, charged Latinos higher taxes, and provided them with substandard services. In 1962, local Mexican-Americans began attempting to register to vote, only to be faced with harassment and intimidation from local police and employers. After an extended effort involving outside monitors, press attention, and lawsuits, they registered and, in 1963, ran a slate of candidates for the local city council. In response, the Texas Rangers undertook a program of intimidation. They tried to prevent voter rallies, threatened candidates and their supporters, and even engaged in physical attacks and arrests. In the end, because of extensive outside press attention, the Rangers had to back down, and the slate swept the election, ushering in a period of greater civil rights for Mexican-Americans. Slavery was another major force that shaped early U.S. policing. Well before London Metropolitan Police were formed, southern cities like New Orleans, Savannah, and Charleston had paid full-time police who wore uniforms, were accountable to local civilian officials, and were connected to a broader criminal justice system. These early police forces were derived not from the informal watch system, as happened in the Northeast, but instead from slave patrols, and developed to prevent revolts. They had the power to ride onto private property to ensure that slaves were not harboring weapons or fugitives, conducting meetings, or learning to read or write. They also played a major role in preventing slaves from escaping to the north through regular patrols on rural roads. While most slave patrols were rural and non-professional, urban patrols like the Charleston City Guard and Watch became professionalized as early as 1783. By 1831, the Charleston police had 100 paid city guards and 60 state guards on duty 24 hours a day, including foot and mounted patrols. Enslaved people often worked away from their owner's property in warehouses, workshops, and other workplaces as part of industrialization. This meant that large numbers of unoccupied enslaved peoples could move about the city on their own as long as they had a proper pass. They could congregate with others frequent illicit underground taverns, and even established religious and benevolent associations, often in conjunction with free blacks, which produced tremendous social anxiety among whites. Professional police were thus deemed essential. Richard Wade quotes a Charlestonian in 1845. 
Over the sparsely populated country where gangs of Negroes are restricted within settled plantations under immediate control and discipline of their respective owners, slaves were not permitted to idle and roam about in pursuit of mischief. The mere occasional riding about and general supervision of a patrol may be sufficient, but some more energetic and scrutinizing system is absolutely necessary in cities, where from the very denseness of population and closely contiguous settlements, there must be a need of closer and more careful circumspection. To quote, the result, according to Wade, was, quote, a persistent struggle to minimize Negro fraternizing and, more especially, to prevent the growth of an organized colored community. This was done through constant monitoring and inspection of the black population. The heavily armed police regularly inspected the passes of employed slaves and the papers of free blacks. Police waged a constant battle to close down underground bars, study groups, and religious gatherings. The only limits on police power was that enslaved people were someone else's property. Killing one would result in civil liability to the owner. In rural areas, the transition from slave patrols to police was slower, but the basic functional connection was just as strong. When slavery was abolished, the slave patrol system was too. Small towns and rural areas developed new and more professional forms of policing to deal with the newly freed black population. The main concern of this period was not so much preventing rebellion as forcing newly freed blacks into subservient economic and political roles. New laws outlawing vagrancy were used extensively to force blacks to accept employment, mostly in the sharecropping system. Local police enforced poll taxes and other voter suppression efforts to ensure white control of the political system. Anyone on the road without proof of employment was quickly subjected to police action. Local police were the essential front door of the twin evils of con convict leasing and prison farms. Local sheriffs would arrest free blacks on flimsy to non-existent evidence, then drive them into a cruel and inhuman criminal justice system whose punishments often resulted in death. The same sheriffs and judges also received kickbacks and in some cases generated lists of fit and hard-working blacks to be incarcerated on behalf of employers, who would then lease them out to perform forced labor for profit. This sounds like exactly what we have. Right, like, how much of this can you relate to, Doug? Douglas Blackmon chronicles the appalling conditions of mines and lumber camps where thousands perished. By the Jim Crow era, policing had become a central tool of maintaining racial inequality throughout the South, supplemented by ad hoc vigilantes such as the Ku Klux Klan, which often worked closely with and was populated by local police. Northern policing was also deeply affected by emancipation. Northern political leaders deeply feared the northern migration of newly freed rural blacks, whom they often viewed as socially, if not racially, inferior, uneducated, and criminal. Ghettos were established in northern cities to control this growing population, with police playing the role of both containment and pacification. Up until the 1960s, this was largely accomplished through the racially discriminatory enforcement of the law and widespread use of excessive force. There's that discrimination again. Racially discriminatory this time. Blacks knew very well what the behavioral and geographic limits were and the role the police played in maintaining them in both the Jim Crow South and the ghettoized North. With the rise of the civil rights movement came more repressive policing. In the South, police became the front line for suppressing the movement. They denied protest permits, threatened and beat demonstrators, made discriminatory arrests, and failed to protect demonstrators from angry mobs and vigilante actions, including beatings, disappearances, bombings, and assassinations. 
All of this occurred to preserve a system of formal racial discrimination and economic exploitation. In northern and western cities, the suppression of the movement sometimes took a more nuanced approach at first. But when that failed, overt violence soon followed. Many cities allowed a wide variety of protest actions to occur with only minor restrictions. Boycotts and pickets in support of southern organizing were largely tolerated, as was protest aimed at local governments calling for jobs, education, and social services. As these movements grew and became more militant, however, they were subjected to even more repressive tactics. New quote-unquote red squads were developed that gathered intelligence through informants, infiltrators, and even agent provocateurs, who actively worked to undermine groups like the Black Panthers and the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE. Eventually, local police, often working in cooperation with the FBI, undertook the overt suppression of these movements through targeted arrests on trumped-up charges and ultimately even assassinations of prominent leaders such as Fred Hampton, the Black Panther leader killed in a hail of gunfire in the middle of the night during a police raid of his Chicago apartment. The American Indian Movement and the Latino-based Brown Berets and Young Lords faced similar forms of repression. These movements were suppressed in part based on the counterinsurgency strategies that emerged out of the foreign policy of that era. From 1962 to 1974, the U.S. government operated a major international police training initiative staffed by experienced American police executives called the Office of Public Safety. This agency worked closely with the CIA to train police in areas of Cold War conflict, including South Vietnam, Iran, Uruguay, Argentina, and Brazil. According to internal documents, the training emphasized counterinsurgency, including espionage, bomb-making, and the interrogation techniques. In many parts of the world, these officers were involved in human rights abuses, including torture, disappearances, and extrajudicial killings. Over $200 million in firearms and equipment was distributed to foreign police departments, and 1,500 U.S. personnel were involved in training a million officers overseas. Even more troubling is that many of the trainers moved in larger numbers into law enforcement, including the Drug Enforcement Agency, FBI, and numerous local and state police forces, bringing with them a more militarized vision of policing steeped in Cold War imperatives of suppressing social movements through counterintelligence, militarized riot suppression techniques, and heavy-handed crime control. It goes to show, when a hammer is your only tool, every problem begins to look like a nail. It's interesting to see the way the fringe of the empire kind of informs the core, the practices that go on in the core of the empire. Like, what can you get away with on the on the extremities and import as much of that as you can back into the ghettos and the... It's a testing ground. Yeah. Both for, like, weapons of war and for, like... The book goes on here. They applied this counterinsurgency mindset to the political uprisings occurring at home. OPS director Byron Engel testified before the Kerner Commission on Civil Disorders that, quote, in working with the police in various countries, we have acquired a great deal of experience in dealing with violence ranging from demonstrations and riots to guerrilla warfare. Much of this experience may be useful in the U.S. The result was a massive expansion of federal funding for the police under the Johnson administration. Under the guise of professionalizing the police, the federal government began spending hundreds of millions of dollars to provide police with more training and equipment with fewer strings attached. Unfortunately and unsurprisingly, Rather than reducing the burden of racialized policing, this new professionalization movement merely enhanced the police power and led directly to the development of SWAT teams and mass incarceration. It's almost like they did nothing but give them bigger guns. 
Well, now you know a little bit more about the history of policing. And it seems to just escalate through time. And kind of gives you some perspective really on where we're going next. That's really what it is. Like you said, the ratchet effect is constantly like push back against the police. They respond with more police. You get upset at that. Eventually, you're going to push back. They respond with more police. <laughs> oh, the better rat, you get a better rat trap. <laughs> when it comes to the state of modern day policing, there's a lot that can be said. It's lots of harsh words and feelings that get tossed around and a lot of people who are not sure where their opinions fall in the matter. They might be sympathetic with the they might be sympathetic to the many victims of police who do make it onto the evening news. However, they grow skeptical when they hear for calls for abolition and and for the closure of prisons. If you don't want to take our word for it, Let's try by listening to the words of a cop. The YouTube channel That Dang Dad is hosted by Phil, who is himself an ex-cop and a self-described abolitionist, who does a great job talking about police culture and breaking down the most common myths around police abolition. This includes tackling questions like, what about the murderers? And what abolitionists recommend instead of police? He has one video discussing the lies he told as a police officer that was really interesting. One major point he brought up is how lying during an interrogation is completely legal. This is why it is crucial to never speak with the police and always insist on a lawyer. Fraser v. Cup was a Supreme Court decision that set the precedent that police deception during interrogation does not make a confession coerced. Other cases he mentions to preempt his discussion are Miller v. Benton, which found that police officers pretending to be your friend can lie to you in order to get you to confess. And a case called In the Matter of DAS from 1978, where the police lied to a suspect about finding fingerprints on a stolen pocketbook, causing the suspect to confess. The courts found that this was legal and that these cases collectively helped set the precedent that the police can legally lie to you in the course of their job. Some of the lies that he mentioned having made during his time as a police officer was suggesting that confessions may get reduced sentences to a suspect, telling a person suspected of a misdemeanor that the police had proof of a felony in order to get a confession on the misdemeanor, implying that not talking to him would be obstruction and that if the suspect simply talked to him, then they wouldn't be arrested. Multiple instances of lying about evidence obtained in order to coerce confessions, and even going so far as to make up fake laws. He then told a story about an assault on a trans sex worker. The original officer handling the call was extremely hostile to this worker, and told her that technically, because she was a sex worker, he was supposed to arrest her, and if she made a report that he would do so, and to drop it. And Phil, this ex-cop, had to come over and help her file a report. He then quoted Antonin Scalia out of the case McNeil versus Wisconsin, in which he said, quote, Admissions of guilt are more than merely desirable. They are essential to a society's compelling interest in finding, convicting, and punishing those who violate the law. He concludes by saying to never talk to police. Always assume you are a suspect. If interrogated, tell them that you invoke your right to silence and your right to counsel in order to protect yourself during any interrogation. His point being that any conversation with a cop is an interrogation. Another interesting video, which ties into what we are talking about earlier, with the institution of policing being so terrible for those involved in it, Phil then goes on to describe how becoming a police officer fucked up his brain so bad. He told a story about his drug task force make, making a raid on a suspected drug dealer. He was standing guard to make sure the dealer didn't run as they gassed him with round after round of tear gas. He discussed picturing killing this suspect over and over and over because he was psyching himself up to kill this person who was suspected to be armed. 
After the suspect was mauled by their police dogs and arrested, he was off that site and on to the next call. He talks about his training being told not to show weakness and was shown hundreds of videos of cops being killed to show him how dangerous his job was and how dangerous the public might be. At any given time, someone out there might hurt you if you're not ready to hurt them first. You let your guard down and they will kill you. You end up running these deadly scenarios happening all day, every day. What if a man popped out that dumpster or whatever? As he said in one video, when your only tool is a hammer, all your problems begin to look like nails. This leads to constant vigilance that never lets him relax in public to this day, years after he left the force. The symptoms he describes is akin to PTSD. He can never stop this hypervigilance now, and it wasn't until he had his daughter that he realized how unhealthy this behavior was. Now he has to rely on self-guided CBT books because he has no benefits or compensation for this sort of trauma from the police department. His most chilling comment is that many of the people who have had their brain broken by police work are still police. Many of these abusive patterns can affect the lives of those around this individual, as police have notoriously high rates of domestic abuse and child abuse, as well as drug and alcohol abuse. Again, Google 40% of cops. Research, slightly outdated and skewed by a culture of silence and intimidation, suggests that police officers in the United States perpetuate acts of domestic violence at roughly 15 times the rate of the general population. Because officers protect their own, domestic victims of violent cops often don't know where to go. He says how there are certainly nice and compassionate officers out there, but that they are not leading department policy or the culture of policing in this country. They are not representative of the institution as a whole. He finishes by saying that you should never feel safe when the police arrive, that any time you are within 20 feet of a cop, you are in danger, both from their overactive imagination and their total systemic insulation from consequences. After a Los Angeles Police Department officer murdered his wife and committed suicide in the late 90s, a review of domestic abuse allegations brought against officers shown that between 1990 and 1997, 227 alleged cases of domestic violence were brought against police officers. Only 91 were sustained, and only 4 resulted in conviction of criminal charges. Of the 4 convictions, only 1 officer was suspended from duty. He was asked to take 3 weeks off. I'd assume paid, of course. Yes, probably. According to the Washington Post's count, 1,082 people have been shot and killed by the police in the last 12 months. Additionally, the rate of fatal police shootings among black Americans was much higher than for any other ethnicity, standing at 5.9 fatal shootings per million of the population per year between 2015 and March 2023. As for the best-performing reforms of the day... As of 2019, it was found that police killings decreased by a mere 25% in the United States in police departments that implemented a policy that requires all use of force to be reported and all manner of force to be used prior to deadly force. Departments that implemented a ban on chokeholds and strangleholds saw a decrease in police killings by 22%. So the very best these reformists have been able to achieve is a quarter reduction in deaths. That's an argument for total abolition if I've ever heard one. Well, I think we're starting to strain the patience of our listeners in how long this episode has gone on. So why don't we wrap it up with a list of books that you can read if you'd like to learn more about police abolition. We would recommend checking these books out. Obviously, The End of Policing by Alex Vitale, which we used for today's episode, as well as Are Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis, Instead of Prisons by the Prison Research Education Action Project, 
Locked Up by Alfredo Bonanno, and the Creative Interventions Toolkit, a practical guide to stop interpersonal violence. Doug, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you for coming on today. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been fun talking. So in conclusion, what we can tell is that the problem with good cops is that they are irrelevant in the face Wait, of don't open that door! Ah! We lost Doug! Molotov Now is experiencing technical difficulties. We'll be back after a message from these sponsors. Are you ready for a new world? Introducing black flower permaculture. It's time to revolutionize the way we relate to our food. If you want to grow more food closer to home, reduce your carbon footprint, or just beautify your property, we are the design collective for you. Don't wait any longer to get a jump on your food security and contribute to a better world. Black Flower Permaculture is a worker-owned and operated enterprise dedicated to the creation of a world in which individuals have the autonomy, knowledge, and resources to create fulfilling lives and communities free of oppression. Our mission is to learn together the ways in which we can healthily relate to each other and to our environment. We are a collective of designers and consultants focusing on whole systems design and productive ecological landscapes. Our goal is to guide homeowners, developers, private enterprises through the process of vision development, real estate search assistance, residential and commercial design, and both design and project review. Black Flower Permaculture delivers comprehensive plans which address the unique aspects of any project. We present food, energy, water, waste, and building systems in illustrated site plans which are as accessible as they are beautiful. Design allows us to participate in the creation of all sorts. When applied to culture, it is the ability to create one's own culture as you see fit. There's much to learn from the past, but we must not be subservient to it. We can change our ways as it suits us. Permaculture gives us a good path forward for attacking any problem head-on. It's direct action. It is revolutionary. By designing a permanent culture built on these ideals, we can promise a future to the next seven generations and begin to heal the wounds caused by such poorly designed systems as we have today. For this reason and more, we feel it is necessary to promote this distinct theory as a guide for those wanting to practice and learn design concepts that we can use to liberate our planet, redesign our world, and create a new world in the shell of the old. So in conclusion, what we can tell is that the problem with good cops is that they are irrelevant in the face of an institution built on brutal violence. Their role is and has always been protection of capital and control of the population. They exist to maintain the status quo, and therefore any revolutionary must also be an abolitionist. We cannot afford to sit this fight out and cede ground to the state by not challenging police departments in small rural towns. Wherever we live, the police uphold the poverty that we struggle against. Wherever we live, we should seek to oppose them with everything we have. They can never be our allies, as their allegiances lie elsewhere. 
It lies with the culture of supremacy that infests the heart of every officer, good or bad. Police look at this capitalist hellscape of a world as something to be defended, not something to be destroyed. It is our position that every cop should quit their position and start to make amends for the harm they have caused in society. Other than that, we have no use for them. The institution of policing will never be anything than what it is. It couldn't be. What it is underpins our entire modern social, economic, and political system. Without the police, everything is called into question. Do we need politicians, leaders, authorities, bosses, or managers? Those curious enough to ask this question honestly will come to the same conclusion. The answer is no. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Molotov Now. We hope you found it informative and inspiring. Our goal with the podcast is to reach out beyond our boundaries and connect the happenings of our small town with the struggles going on in major urban centers. We want to talk to you if you're a big city organizer. We think we have a lot you can learn from, and we know you have much to teach us. If you would like to come on the show, please email us at sabo underscore media at riseup.net with the header Molotov Now, and we'll be in touch about setting up an interview and crafting an episode to feature you. That's S-A-B-O-T underscore media at riseup.net. We want to give a shout out to our friends at Queer Satanic, who come with good news and bad news for our devilish comrades. The good news, the four former members of the Satanic Temple won their legal defense after nearly three years of the Satanic Temple suing them in federal court for online criticism. Congratulations on their victory. The bad news, the Temple has appealed their loss to keep extending this case and and its expenses for the defendants, which in December exceeded $115,000. Any donations to their legal defense funds would be appreciated. Their website is queersatanic.com. The South Florida Anti-Repression Committee has launched a solidarity campaign for two individuals facing 12 years for an alleged graffiti attack on a fake Christian anti-choice clinic that does not provide any reproductive care. This federal overreach and use of the FACE Act, an act meant to protect people visiting reproductive clinics from harassment, is unprecedented. To support this solidarity campaign, please visit bit.ly backslash freeourfighters. We want to thank the Black Flower Collective for their continued support and wish them luck in their fundraising efforts. To support them or learn more, their website is blackflowercollective.noteblogs.org. And don't forget to join them this May 1st at Events on Emerson for May Day on the Harbor. Collectiva, the anarchist Mastodon server, is growing faster than ever thanks to Elon Musk's stupidity as many activists close their accounts for bluer skies, as can be seen in the fluctuation of followers over on IGD's socials. Join at collectiva.social, spelled K-O-L-E-K-T-I-V-A, and follow us and other online activists on the decentralized federated internet. Don't forget to go to bit.ly Lakota Law ICWA and sign the petition by the Lakota People's Law Project telling Joe Biden and attorneys for the Department of Justice to do everything in their power to protect the Indian Child Welfare Act and defend Secretary Deb Haaland. Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network is holding a fundraiser to purchase a brand new canopy tent for their weekly meals with Food Not Bombs. 
To donate, visit linktree backslash crmutualaidnet. Don't forget, the Communique is looking for artists and author submissions. Please write to sabo underscore media at riseup.net to submit your entry before June 7th for our summer solstice edition. As reported previously, Katie Hussey is still struggling in the wake of harassment by Dayton police that has cost her her employment and housing. Please send any donations to Venmo at Katie Hussey, that's K-A-T-Y-H-U-S-S-E-Y, or Cash App Katie Hussey to help them during this time. Thank you to Pixel Passionate for producing our soundtrack. Please check out their website at www.radicalpraxisclothing.com and check out their portfolio in our show notes. And finally, we were recently featured on a two-part episode of It Could Happen Here, where we delved into the dichotomies between rural and urban organizing and the plans for the radical future of the harbor. To check it out, visit the new webpage, blackflowercollective.noblogs.org backslash press. Remember to check out Sabo Media's website for new episodes, articles, comics, and columns. We have new content all the time. Make sure you follow, like, and subscribe on your favorite corporate data mining platform of choice. And go ahead and make the switch to Federated Social Media on the Collectiva Mastodon server today at Aberdeen Local 1312 for updates on Sabo Media projects such as the Harbor Rat Report, the Saboteurs, Ask Amy, our podcast Molotov Now, and many other upcoming projects. That's all for tonight. Please remember to spay new to your cats, and don't forget to cast your votes at those who deserve them. Solidarity, comrades. This is Maltov now, signing off. Oh, no, 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 no.